Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over a hundred casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, believe it by law. Eighteen plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Before the break, we were talking about the city of Valley Park and the attorneys sort of doubling down on this position that the accuracy of uh, of where this lynching happened is in question. What was it like? to hear that explanation that basically said John Buckner wasn't killed here so memorial like that's that is not something we're interested in what frustrated me about the uh, so that was disappointing that the city so far has has uh, has taken the position that it has nothing to do with uh, Valley Park um, and on the specific issue of where the lynching happened though it was also frustrating to me because you know, in fact, the lynching, uh, if we really think about it, was really a, a spatially distributed event. It happened uh, across space. It happened when and where the mob formed, which included Valley Park, according to historical sources. It happened when and where he was abducted in Manchester uh, from the place he was being uh, detained after arrest. It happened all along the route the mob took, uh, traveled with this young man they'd kidnapped through Valley Park, where apparently no officials intervened, uh, leading to his execution by hanging from the bridge. But it didn't end there. Vast uh, crowds are are reported to have come out to see the body hanging the next day. And they took that experience. They took the lessons of the lynching back to the places they'd come from. Mm -hmm. So I think if we're honest with each other, we have to acknowledge that this is an event that happened in greater St. Louis. The nation for a time intently focused on Ferguson, Missouri, after the police shooting death of Michael Brown. And the outrage that followed the officer involved was not indicted. Tonight here, the new findings, authorities pointing to racist emails, traffic stops, and the use of excessive force. Ferguson's police chief has admitted things could be better. And there's been a lot of training, uh, a lot of training that's going to be forthcoming. But some of what investigators found was beyond sensitivity courses. An email from a city official in 2008, for example, saying that President Obama would not be president for very long because, quote, what black man holds a steady job for four years? Vanessa Bryant's newest court filings draw on more than a year of investigation and sworn depositions that have been conducted by her lawyers who are trying to show a federal court there's good reason for L.A. County to be put on trial. Bryant's attorneys say there's evidence that what they call souvenir photos of her husband's corpse that were not official investigation pictures were sent far and wide in both departments. The court filings say a now-retired L.A. County fire captain named Brian Jordan, who often appeared on local TV newscasts in his previous role as a department spokesman, lied to get access to the scene and took photos focused on Kobe and Gianna Bryant's remains. Bryant's lawyers say another firefighter, public information officer Tony Imbrenda, also a familiar TV presence, later flashed the pictures around at an awards dinner, causing another guest to say, I just saw Kobe's body all burnt up before I'm about to eat. And that a sheriff's detective, Scott Miller, offered to show the pictures to his wife, telling her they showed piles of meat. Kobe Bryant and his 13-year-old daughter, Gianna, were among the nine killed when the helicopter they were in crashed in poor visibility in Calabasas in January 2020. Billy Holiday, I sing your blues. Bet your life against me and I swear to God you'll lose it. 
Motherfuck the cops, we still saying for St. Louis. Motherfuck the cops, we still saying for St. Louis. Motherfuck the cops, we still saying for St. Louis. Police say they're looking into what happened, but deny any kind of racial profiling. Don't forget your nigger knocker. Still 15 years, best introductions in the business. Gusty Renegade, context of white supremacy. In for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on what white supremacy racism is and how it works for non-white people, victims of racism. Today's date, Tuesday, December 12, 2023. So I have been told we'll be here tomorrow, just like today at our normal broadcast time. Same time as always, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Similar subject matter. Looking forward to it quickly. The intros <clears throat> that we heard for today's broadcast <clears throat> got choked there, my goodness. The intros that we heard. Uh, so we had uh, in the background Missouri native victim of white supremacy, uh, Billy Holiday. St. Louis Blues playing in the background uh, and the report about the lynching of John Buckner in 1894 uh, way up in Valley Park Missouri specifically uh, in the efforts to get a memorial to recognize acknowledge uh, this incident of white terrorism we'll get more into details about all of that as we uh, proceed we heard the segment talking about remembering Michael Brown Jr., who I just recalled this weekend. I said his name because they gave the report about the death penalty and white supremacy racism in Missouri specifically. And they talked about the disproportionate number of black males who end up getting the death penalty and how it is especially bad if the victim is white. And the perpetrator is black, like, ooh-wee, even more likely. Death penalty for you, buddy. And they said specifically with Bob McCullough that I think it was eight of the cases that he had got overturned where it was a black person. Death penalty case, no less, where they said there was some sort of racism uh, in the case uh, where the person did not get due process. The black person who could have died John Buckner. Anyway, but that was this weekend where I just mentioned Michael Brown Jr. We heard the report where they talked about after he was killed in 2014, left in the street for hours, and the subsequent unrest that we talked about and covered in great detail that the following year, 2015, way back when Eric Holder was still Attorney General, they released the Department of Justice report. Oh my goodness. They sick the dogs on black people. We talked about that. Sicking the dogs on black children. Mary Ann Twitty. Do you know I went and I did a search today just to see what would pop up. Mary Ann Twitty. I put her name into YouTube and there was nothing. This isn't even ancient history. It hasn't even been a decade yet. And Mary, who? What? Mary Ann? Send in the racist emails. What black dude keeps a job for four years? I'm talking about President Obama. All of that in the middle, uh, and then we heard the great Kobe Bryant, the late Kobe Bryant, that the L.A. County Sheriff's officers 
swapping pictures of he and his daughter Gianna's corpse a souvenir where have we heard that sort of language before oh lynchings like at John Buckner I have been stunned because that's kind of old news Uh, they've even had a court settlement that was tens of millions of dollars for that sort of conduct them swap going to the bar and all that swapping these pictures just like lynching photographs there have been so many people said what they did what Kobe when did this happen it's been so many people that said they didn't hear about that at all Anywho, that was one. And then we ended, oh, so sly. That song, Rhapsody's Drama, Black Female Artist, 50 Years of Hip Hop, that song was created in the middle of 2014, literally days after Michael Brown Jr. was killed. That is the drama, but yes, we do remember. Expletive to the cops in St. Louis. That is what she is talking about in the context for when that was produced. We ended with Norm Stan. She even gave the echo to Billie Holiday. Remember? Right, right. Uh, and we ended, that was Norm Stamper, his first time as a guest on the Cows. White man, former police chief of the Seattle Police Department, and he was an enforcement officer in Southern California, San Diego, 30 years as a so-called police officer wearing a badge and a gun. He said that was his training as a police officer in San Diego. His white training officer told him, go in that bar, get the biggest, blackest dude you can find. You bring him out here and we are going to beat him down. Says, okay. And he said, told him before you go in, look here, no, don't forget your nigger knocker. This is okay. He grabbed my nigger knock and he was going in to grab big black dude. He says, oh, I'm just joking. I'm just joking. <laughs> Racist jokes again. Norm Stamper in the archives, 2009. He wrote about that in his book, Breaking Rank, where he wrote about that in detail. That's the introduction for the day. I need that Kobe Bryant coming back to that for a laters. Anyway, our guest for today's broadcast have to give the footnotes first. Whew. Sometimes just looking at the footnotes, I'm like, wow, either we've done really great work or at least we can pretend really well. Just reading the footnotes, I saw so many familiar names. Douglas Blackman, Slavery by Another Name, with us in 2010. Dr. John Hoberman, a multiple-time guest. Now, he normally gets mentioned for Darwin's Athletes, but... His book, Black and Blues, so important, talking about white doctors deliberately practicing racism. Very important. Uh, The late Charles W. Mills, guest with us in 2009. Uh, Philip Dre, at the hands of persons unknown. Such an important book. Uh, Amy Louise Wood, uh, Spectacle of Lynchings, with us in 2016. Uh, Joe Vegan with us in 2010. Uh, two-faced racism. He's written many books, but we talk specifically about two-faced racism and racist jokes. One of my favorite subject matters. Uh, and last but not least, there are probably more, but how many can you get in? Raul Perez, excuse me, Raul Perez with us just last summer talked about his book, The Souls of White Jokes. It's, wow. 
We have talked to a lot of these folks. I generally do try to check the footnotes just to see. Are we revisiting any folks? Yes, we are. Anyway, our guest for today's broadcast, that was him in the intro talking about the lynching of John Buckner and the efforts to get uh, recognition about this event and why it is important uh, and even what relevance this has all of these years, uh, over 125 years later, why this is still relevant uh, in the Missouri area, certainly uh, in the U.S. abroad. Uh, in addition to talking about the case with John Buckner, our guest for today's broadcast has written a, a litany of fascinating reports, does a lot of great research uh, on the legacy of white terrorism, racist violence, mostly targeting black people, non-white people here in the U.S. He is a professor of African and African American studies and a faculty affiliate in American culture studies and sociology at Washington University in St. Louis. Uh, as I said, he studies the legacies of racial violence. He is a member of the Reparative Justice Coalition. Super excited to have him as a guest on the program to discuss Mr. John Buckner, uh, as well as his great work on racist jokes. Uh, our guest for the evening, Dr. Jeffrey K. Ward. Dr. Ward, are you with us, sir? Hello. Thank you for having me with you tonight. Thank you kindly for sharing a bit of your Tuesday evening. Could be out, I don't know, buying eggnog, Christmas shopping, whatever it is. Uh, for our listeners, this uh, might be for a lot of folks their first time uh, hearing about the work that you do. Uh, if you could tell us uh, what you study, what your research is down in the Missouri area. Sure. Uh, I'm a historical sociologist, and I've been studying the politics of race, uh, the question of racial justice, for many years now, going on I think over two decades. Uh, so my earlier work was on race in the criminal legal system, particularly the juvenile justice system. I wrote a book called The Black Child Savers, Racial Democracy and Juvenile Justice, which is about the, the rise and fall and haunting remnants of Jim Crow juvenile justice. In particular, I talked I engaged there how generations of black women mobilized in beginning, beginning in the 1890s uh, to dismantle Jim Crow juvenile justice systems and, and, their, um, and what they accomplished and, and how their efforts have also fallen short. Uh, and from there, I started to focus more on the legacies of race-related political violence, and, um, the history and legacy of lynching and also slavery. Um, and at this point, uh, you know, in 2018, I, I came to St. Louis to join the faculty in, in African and African American Studies at Washington University in St. Louis, and 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 here I've really been focusing on um, the question of repair. What do we do to uh, to counteract the haunting legacies of historical racial violence? Awesome. We will try to cover as much material as we can the time that which you have this, that we have you this evening. Uh, I guess to to start with it, I remember the day I literally wrote it down in my notes, October 10, when we were hearing the report that you did with St. Louis Public Radio talking about John Buckner. And you talk about repair, which you just told us uh, the efforts to repair and and uh, acknowledge truthfully uh, what happened with John Buckner and some of these other incidents of racial violence, white terrorism. 
Uh, and I looked and I saw your image. And I was like, whoa, is he classified as a white person, Dr. Ward? I was a little confused. Uh, and I asked some of the listeners. Some of them were confused. Some of them were not. Uh, most important question, are you classified as a white man, Dr. Ward? <laughs> Well, that's interesting. Did you do a survey of your listeners? I would be curious to know what the data say about what people thought. I will. I'll tell you once you once you give us the answer. So, are you classified as a white man? Well, well, you know, it's interesting you say that because really the answer is twofold. One is how I identify, uh, but you've asked me how I'm classified, and. Um, classified is is uh, really a matter of, of, of the uh, racial meaning people assign to me. And, you know, as an ambiguous black person, uh, I've lived my whole life being, uh, you know, confronted with people being puzzled. What am I? You know, so quote unquote, and uh, are you black or how black are you? And all those kinds of questions. So, um, to, to answer the question you, 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 you want me to answer, in terms of, which I think is how do I identify, uh, uh, I identify as African-American, and I, I grew up in a black family, and my parents were biological parents. Father was black, mother was white, and so I'm biracial. But I was adopted as a one-year-old by a black family from Chicago. And that's, and that's, why, that's, uh, that's how I identify uh, a classification is another question, and you know, and that really gets into the the nature of race uh, as a social construct and, and something that gets uh, assigned and and also uh, uh, that gets constructed through things like uh, your favorite topic, racist jokes. We got to get to that one. My favorite topic, wowzers. Okay. Uh, now, actually, the question was, are you classified as a white man? And certainly racial classifications are, as you say, a social construct. They are made up absolutely. However, in a system of racism, white supremacy, they are real. And specifically for people born in the U.S., they put that on your birth certificate and lots of legal documents. We talked about white by law. So your birth certificate, what's your racial classification listed as? You know, uh, I don't know. And in fact, I'm not sure it's on my birth certificate. But I'll have to go check. But uh, by the uh, conventions of race by law, uh, particularly the one-drop rule, that's why I mentioned my biological parents, um, I'm a black person. And whether the, uh, the hospital knew that when I was born, uh, is another question. Whether I made it up to my birth certificate is another question. Uh, but, you know, I, I'll have to go look that up. It's interesting. It's interesting. I don't remember seeing it last time I, 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 I looked at my birth certificate. I would be willing to bet a few dollars it is on there, maybe even some Benjamins. Uh, I bet it's on there. That is a big deal here in these parts, the whole world, really. Those racial classifications mm -hmm. are important, uh, but I don't want to minimize. Make sure I heard that correctly. So you said you have one biological non-white parent classified as black. I think that was your father, and then one biological white parent, your mom. I think you said, and then you were right. adopted. 
by two black yeah. parents. I think you said when you were one. Is that correct? That's correct, yeah. Wow. I was born in Berkeley, California in 1971. Wow. Uh, and, um, yeah, that's correct. Wow. Okay. So did you did they tell you pretty early on that you were adopted, or did they leave that till later on? Uh, no, that, that came out later. Uh, and, you know, it's a long, long story, but it, it did, they didn't tell me early on. Uh, and I learned that later. In fact, I learned that uh, well into my early uh, early adulthood, and by which point I was already beginning to pursue uh, uh, an academic career in sociology as a student, at least. And, and you won't be surprised to know that one of the things I was most interested in early in my journey as a sociologist was the um, uh, it was was skin tone. And, uh, and skin tone stratification. So my earliest research was on on uh, skin color and uh, stratification among African Americans. Fascinating. That is amazing. Um, that, that's a whole book right there. Just wow. Okay. It is. Yeah, <laughs> it is. Uh, oh, thank you for indulging. I will be true to my word, sir. So we did ask, I think. I was confused, one, because, you know, with anybody, even people that are classified as white, uh, people that are non-white, for some folks, depending on if you catch them in the summertime or in the winter, uh, if they've had a little bit more sun, they might look a little bit more Uh pale, a little darker. If the lighting is bad, if someone doesn't know how to do photography well, they might look a lot different, you know, in photos. And so I saw some photos. I was like, whoa, I think this might be a black dude. And then I saw some other photographs where I said, I think this is a white dude. And then we had people and they chimed in and they said, wait a minute, he went to Hampton. That's an HBCU. I think this is a black dude. I said, Ooh, that could be, (laughs) that is, that's true. You went to Hampton. Is that true? I did. I did. I did. So we said, "Hmm, yeah, sure. Hmm. I'm confused. I'm confused. (laughs) We had even, we had even more confusion (laughs) about it. So we bang. So thankful we were able to get that clarified. Do you, do you think you could, uh, the term they use is past. You think you could be accepted as a white person if you wanted to, if you chose to. Well, um, you know, I think, I think it would be, it would, it would not be very likely that I could, uh, in, in, in part just because I'm a, you know, I'm somewhat of a, um, publicly visible, you know, like you said, people were able to dig into the, uh, some some of my background, but also because um, you know I don't really experience. I mean, I think you know, I certainly experience fairly regularly people not um, necessarily thinking I'm black, but they think I'm all kinds of things. They think I'm I'm, I'm Latino. They think I'm um, Native American, Brazilian. You know, all of these things. Um, you know, particularly these, I was walking down Del Mar, uh, the street, in, you know, prominent street in, in St. Louis, and um guy stopped me the other day and said, I know you. Um, you're from New Orleans. And I said, no, I'm not from New Orleans, and we don't know each other, but I look like a lot of people in New Orleans um, because it's one of these uh, uh, places where you have a lot of folks who are, who are mixed and 
And uh, and so, yeah, I don't know if I could or not. I know, you know, it's interesting just in relation to police violence and over-policing, you know. Um, I grew up in Los Angeles in the 1980s. I was adopted in Berkeley. We moved down to Los Angeles. And um, my brother and I, my adoptive brother, so he's the biological children of my adoptive parents, who's unambiguously black, Light skin, but black. Not no one would question that he's whether he's black or not. Uh, you know, we were routinely harassed. He and I and our friends were routinely harassed by L.A. County sheriffs and LAPD. Uh, routinely, I mean, every weekend, pulled over, guns often drawn on us. Get out of the car, put your hands up. You know, don't move. All these conflicting instructions that threatened our lives. But uh, that only happened when I was with my uh, my brother and our friends. When I was alone driving, uh, never bothered by the police. So, you know, again, I wasn't attempting to pass. I wasn't interested in passing. But I think uh, that tells us that when I'm... Uh, when I was alone, I was ambiguous enough or appeared white enough that uh, uh, that I was not harassed by police. And so I was, in effect, passing from their point of view. Um, and, you know, I, you know, you know, I think and, and that's been, you know, that's a part of the, that's that, you know, so-called uh, light skin privilege uh, dynamic that is, a, you know, that I'm certainly familiar with. Um, the flip side of which is uh, is scrutiny uh, by by other black folks about whether in fact you are black, you know, are you authentically black, and are you committed to, to African American? Uh, you know, do you have an African American experience and all those kinds of things? So I've lived on that color line uh, for my whole life. Are we black proud? Jim Jones, Jim Jones, Jim Jones. I love it. Um, Woo. Uh, that is amazing in so many uh, accounts. Um, Wow. That I will just add as an addendum. I included Norm Stamper again, former chief of police here in Seattle at the end. Don't forget your nigger knocker again, the context for all of that. He said the bigger, the darker, the black mm-hmm. male, the more afraid white people, and he's classified as a white man, the more afraid white people are, and the more likely they are to consider them a threat. He wrote that explicitly in his book, Breaking Rank. We talked about it in detail and asked for real world situations like Michael Brown Jr. We had the application, but I'm not surprised at all to hear that the. <laughs> the people who are most to blame class in fact Essie Mae Washington Williams that's all I'll say we talked about all that with Jay Strom uh, Thurman and those HBCUs where uh, white plantation owners often would send off their offspring to go to Essie Mae Washington Williams uh, scholar of African-American studies. Is there some truth to that? Have you seen what I just said? 
Uh, I'm not following. What's the question? Racist whites sending their offspring when they produce children with a non-white person, and they send their offspring to HBCUs uh, like Essie Mae Washington Williams, uh, offspring from J. Strom Thurmond. Uh, yeah, I don't know that to be. I mean, certainly that's not something I was aware of. That, that, that answer, you know, and and uh, and, and that, that I've seen otherwise. I mean, I've not studied that, but um, I'm not. I wouldn't be surprised if uh, if there is, uh, you know, that, that some significant portion of proportion of black students at watched at HBCUs are from mixed race households and. and in part motivated by, you know, an effort to, to, uh, uh, to, 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 you know, more deeply engage their African-American ancestry, heritage, uh, identity. But that, that was, uh, you know, that's not something I was, you know, certainly think that wasn't something I was per se thinking about or, or, uh, aware of at my own experience at, at, uh, at Hampton. I kind of just followed my brother there. My older brother went there, and I went to visit it. And, um, you know, it was a beautiful campus, uh, pretty girls. And I thought, okay, I'll go here too. <laughs> and, you know, and, and speaking of that, um, you know, I think we have to, in the context of this conversation, we have to acknowledge the ways that that, that uh, white supremacy, the, you know, white skin, uh, the sort of colorism, is can be uh, internalized. I mean, I remember, you know, as a young person, girl, black girls at my school, elementary school, saying to me, you know, I'd be standing with my brother. They they point to me and say, "Oh, you got good hair. You you know, you're gonna have pretty babies." This is before I knew anything about how babies were were made, um, but they were signaling early on. Young, you know, elementary, middle school at the most. Uh, early on, this idea that color and and beauty, you know, attraction are are, are connected. Um, I remember after the L.A. uprising, uh, Kelly beating of Rodney King, and the L.A. uprising, we came back from Hampton to L.A. and uh, me and my good friend, uh, my good friend Will went to the Urban League office to get summer jobs. Will is a dark-skinned African-American, um, upstanding human being. I mean, much more so than I was at the time, uh, you know, responsible. He was probably wearing a suit, and he wore a suit to high school. I mean, he was just a really solid, still is, solid guy. But anyway, Urban League official comes out. We're both sitting there in the waiting room, and... Uh, with no information about our backgrounds other than a little bit like name and address, the uh, Urban League guy comes out, points at me, and says, we could definitely find you something. You know, uh, so it's deep. You know, I think, I mean, it's not, I'm not, I know I'm not telling you something you don't know, but uh, it's really interesting that this is the, uh, <laughs> where we started off in our conversation. I wasn't planning, I wasn't anticipating we talked so much about this. But it is a it is a um, it is a really important part of my my life journey and, and experience and something that really motivated me to become a race scholar. 
it's a whole book, Dr. War. It's a whole book. Uh, context of white supremacy. Uh, that is just so folks who have not heard that before. Dear Senator, it is in our book club. Essie Mae Washington Williams. It is amazing. And she will tell you. And I mean, she is the product of all of that. And she went to an HBCU in South Carolina, the South Carolina. Uh, and then she will tell you how is there a pattern of this sort of behavior of racist white people sending their children that they've had with a non-white person sending them off to an HBCU but anywho much obliged for indulging us Dr. Ward all of that fascinating and reveals so many layers before I guess we get to the Buckner situation uh, do you have a definition as a race scholar do you have a definition for what you mean when you use the term racism Uh, you know, I think not really. I think I mean I could give you one, I guess, but I don't. Um, I don't sort of carry one around with me. I mean, it's, it's something I've been studying so long and thinking about. I think uh, racism is, is shorthand for a lot of things. The term racism is shorthand for a lot of things, including, um, you know, the ideology of a racialized social system, you know, it's a social system uh, shaped by, in part, by by race as a social construct. But also it is a reference, a shorthand to the, uh, to describe the, the racial structure that is, that is developed within a racialized social system um, that systematically allocates um, benefits and burdens along these socially constructed lines we call race. So all of that, um, the ideas and the structures uh, that are uh, the sort of, uh, um, you know, the built environment of race, of racialized social system are, are what I think of as racism. Okay. okay. Much obliged for indulging us, Dr. Ward. Uh, you've given us some of your background as to how you got interested uh, in all of this. Um, how exactly did you come to find out about the 1894 lynching of John Buckner and then decide to get involved with trying to get some sort of recognition for this lynching? Well, the story is really... Uh, it, how I got familiar with that case is really, and why I got involved, really begins with uh, some work I started doing back way back in, in 2006 or seven. I mentioned, I mentioned that you know I was doing this work previously on the racial history of juvenile justice, and then I and then I started looking at other kinds of racist violence that, that um, have um, other ways that histories of racist violence shape. Uh, subsequent patterns of, of inequality. And just for context, the reason I became really interested in that is because, as I, you know, in the, my child savers, I write about how these women understood the Jim Crow juvenile justice system as a genocidal institution that was, that was quote, killing the seeds of a people uh, by uh, systematically withholding from black youth the same opportunities for 
self-realization and so forth and, and thus social mobility um, that were that were being made available to white youth accused of crime and and uh, and and they recognized this as a as a kind of collective violence that was that was diminishing African Americans' collective economic and social political prospects in the future. So, you know, the children of the future, Whitney Houston, uh, and so you know, they 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 were really um, that's what really got me thinking about the. Uh, the legacy of racialized violence. In that case, I was looking at the structural violence of the Jim Crow juvenile justice system. And, and from there, I started studying histories of lynching as, uh, uh, because there was a, a small body of research at the time that showed that, that histories of lynching predict subsequent patterns of conflict and violence and inequality. And I started doing um, you know, a lot of research on that relationship, uh, as well as how the history of slavery relates to subsequent patterns of conflict and violence and inequality. And so your listeners sake, I want to just be clear what I mean by that. Um, what these studies are showing us is that in places with histories of lynching and enslavement, you have uh, these places are typically measured at the county level. So with, with county in counties with more pronounced histories of, of lynching, uh, you have today in those same places, uh, higher rates of homicide, higher rates of infant mortality, uh, of, uh, of heart disease among African-Americans. Uh, you have uh, greater, uh, higher rates of white uh, political conservatism and, and white supremacist mobilization, um, more voter suppression, um, higher incarceration rates and use of uh, higher uh, likelihood of corporal punishment in schools, particularly for black children, but also for all children. Um, and all these are net of other factors. These are statistical models that are saying, taking, you know, even after we take account of all the other things that help us explain these kinds of outcomes today, the history of lynching is predictive, you know, uh, of, of, of whether those things will exist or the rate at which they exist. Uh, so when I came to St. Louis and WashU, you know, I came here, came here um, largely because I wanted to um, not only continue that research, but really begin to think about and to focus more on intervention and in these legacies. And and so I uh, I helped form our community remembrance project in St. Louis. This is a project in partnership with Equal Justice Initiative to commemorate. Uh, the history of lynching and to pursue uh, repair and and in the course of uh, organizing with other community members this coalition, we learned about the Buckner case as well as the McIntosh case, uh, Francis McIntosh lynched in 1936, and um, and we um, got to work organizing the remembrance of those events. Much obliged, Dr. Ward. Uh, I was reading about uh, the 1836 lynching of Francis McIntosh uh, yesterday while we were getting ready for the broadcast. I shared it, uh, the remembrance that was held some years back. Uh, McIntosh was abducted by a white mob from the St. Louis jail, then at Six and Chestnut, 
chained to a tree a block away at 7th and Chestnut and burned alive. No one was held responsible. The burned tree was left as a monument to racial terror. Remember I said at the beginning about Kobe Bryant and souvenirs? You'll see that sort of pattern repeat. Uh, with the 1894 instance of John Buckner's lynching, uh, number one, uh, I don't know. Did did some folks they give pushback to say, wait a minute now, Doctor Ward, this 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 privileged black male uh, is a rapist, and he raped a black female, and he was accused of raping a white woman. This is not the sort of no-count Negro that we need to be commemorating. What say you, Dr. Ward? Uh, well, I, that, did, that did happen, but also I should, it's important to also note that uh, many other people said we need to remember this offense. We need to acknowledge this atrocity and atone, you know, bear witness to it. Uh, and then when we got to the point of, uh, of asking the city of Valley Park to um, support our efforts, we experienced some uh, opposition, that uh, some reluctance at least, that, um, you know, that conversation is ongoing. So I'm still hopeful that, that, uh, that the city will, will, uh, will partner with us in, in remembering uh, and doing this reparative uh, community remembrance work, uh, but and then one of the one of the things we heard back from the city is that uh, some of their residents uh, expressed opposition to uh, what they considered, you know, honoring um, a man who who uh, was accused of um, or convicted of and or convicted of. Um, of um, sexual assault, uh, but I think the, you know, what's part of what I want, you know, what's important about that response is that the, is that the the uh, the residents in that community who who objected on that basis are are not understanding the point of the memorial. The point of the memorial is not to say that John Buckner was a. Um, a hero or this you know, great figure we should we should um, we have to remember the point of the memorial is to uh, is to acknowledge uh, the, the, the fact that, uh, that that our supposed rule of law failed and to uh, reassert a commitment to equal protection under law, if in fact that is what we are committed to. And, and equal protection under law is most difficult in the case of an individual who we may especially despise. It's easy when it's, you know, your friend or your relative uh, or yourself, but uh, it's hard when it's someone who, who uh, you might uh, especially despise. And that's the real test, I think, of our democratic values and institutions, is what we do in those cases, in cases like um, those of uh, involving the kinds of things John Buckner is accused of. So we're trying to help the city and its uh, the city representatives come to an understanding of this uh, of this purpose, and, and we think that they um, that they will and will eventually do the 
to some further remembrance of that case. Before I ask my follow-up question, I just want to confirm, because I'm so far from Missouri, Valley Park, Missouri, where all of this took place, is approximately 85% white in terms of uh, people. 85% of the population thereabouts is classified as white. Do you think that's accurate, Dr. Ward? Um. Uh, yeah, I guess so. I mean, I don't know this. I don't know the demographics of it, but this is a this is a just you know to give people some perspective. This is a one of the um, eighty plus municipalities that make up Greater St. Louis on the Missouri side. There's also uh, there are also some uh, metropolitan areas on the Illinois side of the Mississippi River that are part of the Greater St. Louis area. So it's a it's a relatively it's a pretty small place you know it's a small um, um, uh, uh, city slash suburb of the city of st louis and um, but yeah i wouldn't be surprised if that if that if that's right uh this is generally speaking uh the, the racial segregation in st louis and greater st louis involves a concentration of white population on the on the outer edges of the city, uh, the function of white flight and um, you know uh, redlining and and all uh, housing covenants and all those uh, racist structures historically that have shaped uh, the, the communities we live in today. And, and Valley Park's one of those places. You know, it's on the edge of the city. So that, that sounds about right to me. Awesome. I'm looking at uh, the U.S. Census, census.gov, and it has, uh, based on the 2022 information, it has Valley Park's population at about 6,700, maybe a few dozen over that, and then at about 83% white, according to uh, U.S. Census.gov. So I think that's, I was even, when I was looking at it, I was thinking that sounds kind of uh, racially restricted region numbers, so-called sundown towns, where they, uh, some place where they did not allow white people, excuse me, did not allow non-white people, particularly black people to live. Sounds like one of those types of regions, especially if they've had lynchings there. But if it's 85, 83% white people, and I think the way that you phrased it was that they don't understand that this memorial or placard is not to worship or to make a hero out of Mr. Buckner, but to recognize that there was a breakdown in due process and equal protection under the law that all citizens are supposed to be guaranteed according to the Constitution, which we have all sworn to defend with our lives and acknowledging that that did not happen in this instance. And, you know, that is wrong. That shouldn't have happened. And just to acknowledge that uh, you said that they don't understand. And I started all this with saying, hey, Mr. Buckter is no count raping black male. We don't even want to recognize this dude. What if this mostly white town, Valley Park, what if it's that they do not fail to understand? What if their view is, hey, this is what is supposed to have happened? You got a raping nigra, and this is what's supposed to happen to raping negras. What do you think, Dr. Ward? Well, you know, that's what the residents of Valley Park said in, in the 1890s. Uh, in, in the wake of that, they said, uh, that they did not want an investigation of the lynching, that they thought it was a good uh, 
a good job done and, uh, you know, move on. Uh, now, the question before us today and before Valley Park is, is that is that still your position? And I don't, you know, uh, I don't think we've heard the answer to that quite yet. It, 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 um, it, uh, it sounds to me like the city leadership, at least, is... Um, you know, in the in the wake of some of the reporting that's come out on in the St. Louis Post Dispatch, and the, the show, you, you played part of the clip from the uh, uh, the NPR uh, episode where we talked about this case. The city leadership has sounded to me uh, like they're more receptive to this than than was previously the case. Um, so you know we have to see. I I want to I want to uh, give them some more benefit of the doubt and see uh, if in fact we can we can um, move forward uh, with this remembrance effort. And you know, and part of, you know, and I do think you know you know I don't want you to think I'm entirely naive. I realize there are uh, there are people today who continue to advocate lynching and condone lynching and other racial terror and, and imagine some of those people live in Valley Park. But I also believe that um, there is not uh, enough, there's not a lot of understanding about what uh, you know, projects like this are about and, and what what motivated what motivated, for example, Equal Justice Initiative to embark on this work? You know, they they've been working for many many years on the issues of wrongful conviction, and, uh, racism, and, and capital punishment, which we talked about in the intro. Um, and uh, Attorney Brian Stevenson, who leads that organization, not only decided that. that that we needed a national monument to lynching, the National Memorial to Peace and Justice in Montgomery, Alabama. Um, but we needed to do local community remembrance work uh, because they, they they came to the the, the realization that the, that it won't be possible to really address meaningfully in a transformative ways these systematic. Um, uh, inequalities in our criminal legal system if we don't deal with the the way that histories of racial terror have corrupted the rule of law and and this is a strategy they developed to to attempt to um, uh, create a greater commitment to, uh, to the supposed principle of equal protection so I think there are, you know, I think as people become more, uh, become clearer about that, and, uh, then uh, perhaps the, at least the balance of, of opposition to support will shift. I, I don't think we're ever going to have a unanimous situation where everyone agrees that this is important, but I do think we can get to a place where uh, Valley Park might join in this, uh, in this healing effort. What's your response um, in addition to John Buckner raping black males shouldn't be a hero honored 
the response also that, hey, this lynching did not even happen in Valley Park proper, so the marker should be a little bit further outside of proper town limits. What's your response to that? Well, I think, you know, as I I said in the clip you you played, uh, you know, I think that's uh, just factually incorrect. I think the the Valley Park, I think that lynching happened uh, in Valley Park. It happened along a whole uh, path that begins near Valley Park, where, uh, where in an area called Manchester, that's just north of Valley Park, where Buckner was being essentially hidden um, to protect him from the threat of mob violence. He was taken from there by a mob. Some reports from the period suggest that mob form, was formed in part by Valley Park community, you know, prominent members of the Valley Park community. He was taken uh, down the main road. You know, this is 1890s. This is not a well, you know, extensively developed area. There's basically one uh, one main road, and that road that goes to the bridge where he was uh, lynched goes right through the middle of what became um, the city of Valley Park. Later becomes the city of Valley Park, but at the time is uh, recognized as a as essentially a settlement uh, known as Valley Park. Um, and and. You know, and so the, the the lynching happened all throughout that um, that process, the mob forming, the, the the abduction, the taking him to the bridge, which is uh, part of which is in Valley Park, and it crosses into an area that's now part of um, uh, unincorporated St. Louis County. Furthermore, the the uh, newspaper articles of the time uh, discuss the the coroner's inquest and the jurors who the articles of the time say are Valley Park residents uh, 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 de- declaring that that, uh, that that there's no cause for a, uh, a grand jury uh, indictment, uh, that they do not wish for the matter to be further investigated. Uh, everyone's happy with what's happened. So Valley Park is, is, is a Clearly, uh, a key uh, key to the geography of this lynching. The other thing that's important for people to appreciate about why we've been really uh, pushing to have this remembrance, this uh, historical marker placed in Valley Park, uh, is, is that there's a a Greenway Trail that is part of the a major river goes through. Uh, the bridge that we're talking about crosses the Merrimack River, and there's a Greenway Trail along the Merrimack River. It's a trailhead very close to the site where the lynching would have occurred, very close to the bridge. Um, there's there's parking. It's publicly visible. There's a place. There's space for people to um, to reflect on this site of conscience, this place where this atrocity happened. It's a, it's a uh, safely read the marker, see the bridge, um, and you know engage in the remembrance. Whereas the uh, so there's a, uh, a really ideal space for this uh, in our in that community, 
considering all of the history, but also considering the infrastructure today. And uh, the city has said, originally said, well, why don't you go put it on the other side of the bridge? This is an otherwise very industrial area. There's not a lot of safe places or, or easy places for people to, uh, to access. Um, there's uh, you know, heavy trucks and uh, heavy traffic. Um, they suggested we put it in a, another park that's on the other side of the bridge, um, but that you would not you would not um, really easily access, or you know, people would not know the marker was there unless they were going there with the specific intent to see the marker and know exactly where it was. So we we think this is a um, you know the Merrimack Greenway trailhead in in Valley Park is the is the ideal place for this um, remembrance. Um, uh, and uh, you know, Valley Park is the appropriate place for the for the placement of the marker in light of the historical record. Fascinating. Uh, I want to get to one of your other reports, and then to the racist jokes as well. If listeners have a question, we'll get that. I just all of that resistance, and again, this is a lynching that took place. Can't even say last century. This happened in 1894 more than 125 years have passed so it's not even like we're feeling guilty about somebody's grandparent who did this like no way long gone shouldn't be a whole lot of personal blah 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 and even still nope didn't even happen here put it over there in the weeds someplace and he was a no count negro rapist anyway that to me seems like we're not we're not really very vested in all of this but I could be in error um, you wrote a report, Discontinuities in Racialized Legal Violence. This is published in 2021, or your co-author uh, of this report. I want to read a tidbit, uh, the section, Weaponizing the Law, the Historical Encoding of American Law to Sustain White Racial Dominance is well-established and plainly evident in the language of law itself as well as studies of its many misuses. Of particular interest to us is how law is mobilized as a resource of racial dominance and how the networks, strategies, and frames imbricated in racist legal mobilization change and persist through time. I thought that alone was fascinating. Now for this one, if you can... Uh, kind of lower your vocabulary. We have uh, non-white children who I encourage to listen to the broadcast and other folks. So for people who maybe haven't had as much college education as yourself, uh, maybe in their teens, high school listeners, how would you explain uh, the weaponizing of law and how language is a part of this weaponization? Yeah, so... I guess I guess I'd say a couple things. One is just to, to on the point of the discontinuity. It's important to know for the those who are in radio that the dis is in parentheses. So the point is that there are continuities, although they are different uh, in terms of how race and law are combining to. Um, uh, uh, 
to, to, to in efforts to sustain white racial dominance and uh, system of white supremacy. And uh, you know, one 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 sort of you know basic illustration of that or, or way to think about that is something that uh, Brian Stevenson, I mentioned, the attorney who leads the Justice Initiative, something he says frequently, which is that slavery didn't end; it evolved. And you can if you just think about that for a moment, and think about the ways that the system of slavery, which was itself um, in part uh, uh, it's in a very significant way um, authorized and legitimized and and, uh, and um, regulated and so forth through law, you know, where we started out this conversation, for example, about racial classification. That that was that the whole history of racial classification is in part uh uh, motivated by an attempt to define who can and cannot be enslaved, um, and uh, the the um, uh, how the, the the racial classification of the mother would determine the um, and the one drop rule and these other kinds of, uh, uh, of legal criteria would um, uh, would determine the status of uh, of the child. But that system gives way to another system, like uh, the convict lease system. In the, in the post-emancipation period, a system that has been written about as uh, described by one uh, great book on the topic as slavery by another name. Um, we have, you know, this kind of reiteration over time of a similar system whereby People defined on the basis of race are subject to systematic exploitation um, for the benefit of, of the others defined in part on the basis of race. Uh, so that's the kind of recursive, you know, repetitive phenomena that we're interested in that, in that in generally interested in that piece. And 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 we look at uh, different legal. Uh, constructs, but also you know, legal institutions, practices, and so forth that are part of that. For example, how coroners and medical examiners have um, consistently, through this period I'm talking about, going back to the, the era of chattel slavery, the, to, the, to, the, um, to the, the post-emancipation period, and the, um, the violence of the Jim Crow period, all the way up to the present, how coroners and medical examiners have played key roles in uh, neutralizing law or particularly um, protecting uh, white perpetrators from criminal uh, and civil liability uh, by, uh, by doing their part to, to essentially claim that a crime didn't happen, or if it did happen, there's no, we don't, it's, it's impossible to know who's responsible, you know, the hands of persons unknown. Um, so that's a, you know, that's something we saw historically with uh, things like lynching, and we see still today in efforts to, uh, to exonerate um, uh, police uh, who are, are, are implicated in, and racist police violence. 
We also talk in that piece about, just give one last example, um, the, the long history of, you know, the, the racist uh, distress call that uh, most recently, you know, the, the barbecue Becky and uh, Karen and so forth, the, um, the attempt by um, white Americans to, to activate a legal, punitive legal response to their call of distress. You know, that was something that um, Ida B. Wells talked about in, in her work on lynching and others, contemporaries of hers who said, look, you know, uh, you have a lot of consensual relationships between white women and black men that are just, that are, uh, uh, um, that uh, when they're discovered, uh, white women to save their, uh, uh, to save their own skins and their life prospects in a male-dominated society called rape. Uh, you have the Emmett Till case where uh, this woman uh, falsely claimed to have been uh, subject to this aggression and disrespect by the uh, young Emmett Till activating uh, this punitive, extra-legal uh, uh, kind of response. And you have these contemporary cases, and they're, and they're different uh, in form and to some extent, uh, 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 you know, the, the, the sort of strategies being used, but they're somewhat similar in function. So that's what we're looking at in that, in that piece. Um, you know, generally, long society scholars write about legal mobilization as a, as a phenomenon whereby the law on the books gets put into action through um, various approaches to mobilization. You know, uh, in other words, uh, people, in groups, organizations across the political spectrum Oh, your volume went out, Dr. Ward? Your volume you, uh, got really low. I don't know if you got far away from your speaker or what have you, but your volume dropped really, really low. I'm oh, sorry. Yeah, I think my, my, uh, my uh, earpiece went out. Oh, okay. So um, just to finish the point, you have people across the political spectrum who attempt to mobilize the law that is on the books to advance their interests and agendas and and we've been looking at we were looking at how that operates in the context of um, of white supremacy. You specifically, and this is to, when you earlier told us that the folks in the white people in Valley Park, Missouri, that with regards to John Buckner, that they don't understand, because uh, you said a few times that they don't understand with regards to the mo uh, memorial that you all are trying to construct uh, in place there. Uh, I, that comes to mind. This is. Uh, Further down, same report, discontinuities, uh, where you all write the brief examples, and you gave us many, illustrate that post-emancipation reassertions of white social, economic, and political dominance involved more than a transition from one system to another. But trust by the disenfranchisement of black Americans, they illustrate how law was reconfigured as a resource 
of racial dominance and that complex networks, strategies, and frames imbricated in racist legal mobilization both change and persist through time. This evolution has relied on state and non-state actors working on several fronts within and around law including legislators, courts, police, vigilantist groups, and industry working in tandem or on parallel tracks to manage a pliable system of white supremacy older than the nation itself. Now I was a little bit staggered because most of the time you do not see commentary that is that direct about what is happening here but something like that and let you can correct me Dr. Ward let us know if I misinterpreted your brilliant work here especially this passage but when I read something like that I say man this sort of thing because I say all the time white people cannot be ignorant about racism this is exactly why to have a system of white supremacy that is older than the United States so called as a country individuals classified as white can't be ignorant it has to be refined up to the same way that your computer software and your phone has to be updated the system of white supremacy has to be updated refined it doesn't run exactly the same way it did in 1894 today nigh on 2024 to do all of that transfer of white power you would have to have white people in the know and sharing these complex networks strategies frames white people cannot be ignorant to carry all of that on for centuries that's why I said I was taken aback when you kept saying that they don't understand like no white people make it their business to scientifically maintain the system of white supremacy did I misinterpret your work here please let me know Dr. Ward um, well no I, I think you, you you're reading the work accurately I think I disagree with your um, your interpretation of um, what that means for contemporary white populations and really for populations white populations over, as, as a whole historically I mean, I think the, um, you know, I, I, I don't agree that, um, that white folks as a whole are engaged in a careful scientific, uh, you know, sort of um, uh, strategy to maintain white supremacy. Um, uh, I, I don't think that's even necessary, really. I think, in fact, um, the 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 ignorance the misunderstanding you know is an important part of all this you know part of what and this is this, this relates to the racist jokes you know part of what um part of what we see historically and today is um is this is this kind of un um this determination in fact to misinterpret the reality of the world 
uh, and to and, and it's a and it's a motivated kind of uh, political scientists call it motivated ignorance. You know, it's it's an it's a, it's an ignorance that aligns with interests. And you know, there's a really great book. I, I, I think he passed away recently. The the um, the great uh, black philosopher Charles Mills wrote this book, The Racial Contract, which is just an amazing amazing book. And and it's it's basically about how racism modifies the terms of the social contract uh, social contract and and one of the key pillars he says is the what he calls the epistemological um, dimension of the racial contract the epistemological dimension has to do with notions of knowledge and uh, truth and, uh, and how we know things how we can know things and and uh, and he says you know the, the epistemological dimension is essentially an agreement among rights among whites to uh, routinely misinterpret the world, and that, and he writes, you know, he explains that this is necessary psychically to rationalize all the contradictions uh, uh, in their worldview. You know, for example, the contradiction between the idea that America is a beacon of freedom and the reality that America um, historically. Um, his side of enslavement or today uh, has one of the highest incarceration rates in the country. That has to be reconciled. And, and one of the ways it's reconciled is through um, misrepresentation. You know, and, and so I don't think it's the case that, that uh, you know, to go back to Valley Park, that, all of the 6,700 or whatever residents, or the 85% of them who are white, have um, some very detailed and, uh, and strategic kind of agenda around opposition to, um, you know, remembrance of the Buckner lynching. I think for the vast majority of those folks, there's a, a, a real simplification happening where they think, oh, this person wants to make us feel bad. This, this this group wants to make us uncomfortable, makes us feel bad, and uh, and and wants to paint this man uh, Buckner as a national hero, and and, uh, and and we don't want that, you know. And I think that's, you know, so I I, I do think that uh, that you know, and you know, where the legal mobilization piece of this comes in is uh, is. Uh, is you know, creating a you know and, and a lot of this is inherited. You know these residents are not are not the architects of the structure of Valley Park. They've they've uh, they've uh, either been you know grown into that uh, over generations, or they moved there in part maybe desiring a place that's so homogenous. Uh, but they but they um, uh, but they live in a place where uh, where the uh, decision makers at the city level, at least, are overwhelmingly going to be chosen by um, by other white Americans, and uh, and so there, 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 there's there's less op- opportunity for diverse points of view to influence, uh, you know, who gets elected to city office or um, what kinds of views get expressed by you know, city council meetings and so on. Uh, so you know, I don't think it's true. I don't think it's the case, really, that um, uh, that there's this elaborate, precise coordination of the maintenance of the white of the white supremacy system. In fact, you know, I just to make one last point about this. 
you know, there's a there's a um, really good book called Durable Inequality by uh, sociologist Charles Tilley, and he makes the point there, and you know, there's all kinds of evidence about this that um, we could point to. Think about, you know, um, wealth disparity, for example. He he makes the point that um, the 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 systematic inequality in our society no longer depends on active discrimination. It is so deeply woven into the fabric of the society uh, through things like uh, uh, home ownership and uh, and uh, and uh, the you know the racial configuration of neighborhoods and and um, associated disparities in school systems and the like. Um, so I think it's a it's a I think it's more more complicated than uh, and messy than, um, than than what you were describing. Duly noted. Much obliged, uh, Dr. Ward. Uh, Dr. Charles Mills, the late, as I said at the beginning of the program, he was indeed a guest on the program, and I had the pleasure of saying the same thing to him that I am saying to you. If anyone is ignorant about racism it's black people at any rate i'm looking at the <laughs> word choice here or can't we Motiva- all be- hang on hang on a second hang on a second because i have a, a question here motivated okay. ignorance willful ignorance misinterpret the world misrepresentation distortions fictions, corrupted, uh, padding, like all of these different phrasings and such. Um, do white people lie? You mean, uh, what do you mean, ever or always? What do you mean? Do. Yeah, in everyone. The- I mean, people, people lie, yes. Okay, well, let's see. Is, is, is it allowed to say, like in published reports on racism, white supremacy, is it is it allowed, is it legal to say that white people practice racism, white supremacy by lying as opposed to motivated ignorance? Because well, all of these, in my view, all of these are euphemisms and they minimize, they obfuscate, really. If we're just saying at the end of the day that white people lie, I think that would be way better and way less confusing if, in fact, that's what some of this, in fact, really, that's what a lot of this is. This lynching didn't happen in Valley Park. This guy, even the, the uh, we think this is uh, going to be some sort of worship to all of him. I could go down the long list, but I think a lot of this, this is just white people lying to practice racism, white supremacy. Do you think that happens a lot? White people lie to practice racism, white supremacy? Lie. Um, yeah, I think lies, I think it's a, I think it's a big part of the story. You know, like when people say, um, we got to let you go and, you know, it's, uh, you know, it's not you, it's us or, um, you know, when it, you know, I think, I think, yeah, they're lies, but, I think that um, that you know what I'm talking about in terms of motivated ignorance is um, is 
would no. lie be a more accurate word? That's what I'm really getting at. No. Is uh, well, well, that's what I'm saying. I don't think so because, you know, we take the Valley Park case or the lynching of, of John Buckner. I mean, as, as you said, I mean, you, you are, um, you know, deeply informed about the, 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 the history and the politics of race and racism. And I believe you said you did, you'd never heard of the Buckner case. And I think most people, and I hadn't heard of the Buckner case, and most people have not heard of it. And rather than lying about understanding, you know, their understanding of the case, I think what what is typically happening is people are unwilling to learn about the case and saying it is not worthy of their time or effort to understand that case and why it matters still today. Can we hang on one second right there? Can we hang on one second right there? Because just me personally, I think that could be a lie. And the reason is, unless my memory is bad, this is the same area where Mr. Not like exact location, but I mean, it's not just the same state. It's kind of close. Mr. McIntosh, where he was lynched, they kept the tree as a souvenir. Remember the lynching of that Negro. Hoorah. And then they had this. It wasn't, oh man, that was terrible. I feel so bad about that. Let's let's send Mr. Buckner's family sweet potato pie and you know, some grits do what it was no. That was a raping Negro and he got what he was supposed to. They thought it was a good thing. If that's the case, at what point did it shift from we feel good about this, this was supposed to have happened, he got, at what point did it switch to, oh man, maybe this wasn't a good thing and uh, we just don't know it. Like that is a major transition, right? We don't know about well, this. I think, you know, the, the 120 years have passed, um, you know, I think you said, I don't know, I think you didn't do the math, but something like that have passed since the lynching of Buckner and, and today. Uh, that history has been suppressed. It's a story, and it's part of the point of the remembrance, is to bring it out of the uh, the shadows of the past and, and to bear witness, um, to, to disavow the the the, uh, the racial terror lynching and to acknowledge its legacy. So I don't think it's, uh, you know, it's not something that gets, gets handed down um, to everyone uh, in the city of Valley Park, uh, because they're a resident there, and and the lynching of Macintosh was was, uh, was actually not very close to Valley Park, uh, but and it was also 60 years um, earlier. So, you know, generations removed. Part of the motivated ignorance is the um, determination to uh, to uh, to to ignore. In fact. Um, uh, white uh, civic leaders in the wake of the Macintosh lynching specifically wrote in the newspaper that this is a horrible event. Um, the best thing we can do is lift the veil of ignorance and um, move on. And that's exactly what I'm quoting exactly what they wrote about the sort of a best approach to dealing with this atrocity in the case of the Macintosh lynching. So I think this veil, what he called, uh, this, this writer called a veil of ignorance, is, is, what, um, is what Mills is writing about in, in the racial contract. 
and and it's it's uh, it's motivated ignorance. You know, it's ignorance that because you know to to really sit with those facts requires you to think about critically about things like the Pledge of Allegiance and the promise of liberty and justice for all. Um, are we really doing that? Or to think about things like reparations that people don't want to don't really want to think about. And and so they, you know, the marker is a is a permanent obstacle to ignorance. You know, telling the story constantly. So I think, you know, I, I there are some people who are lying for sure, but I don't think that that is. Uh, I don't personally feel that's an accurate way to describe what is happening over time um, uh, in our communities. Mm. That just the fact that this is not a one-time thing that this happens, oh, not like even a one-time Missouri, that this is over and over where you see this same sort of willful ignorance, motivated ignorance, misrepresentation, misinterpretation of the world. That, Fiction, I mean, even fiction, like, man, once we get to that point, like, are you sure lie isn't the most, in my view, the fact that you see this over and over and we get all of this fantastic language and euphemous veil of ignorance. What are we talking about? Are we going to a wedding? Do we have a bridesmaid? What are we talking about? All these metaphors, fabric, there we go get fabric of society. What are we talking about? Are we knitting a blanket? Are we in a quilting yeah. class? I thought we, we were talking are. about we a system of terrorism. Yeah. That's what we're talking about. And in fact, I mentioned sundown towns because that's it sounds like what we're talking about is a racially restricted region, even sundown town. I said that's another metaphor, racially restricted region. But James Lowen's book is titled Sundown Towns. Where he talks about places like Missouri and way up north being racially restricted, particularly for black people. But he didn't say the problem was ignorance. You can't have a billboard up that says no niggers and then claim that we're ignorant about how the billboard got there, who put the billboard up, who maintains the billboard, who makes sure that no niggers do indeed encroach upon the city. You can't be ignorant about any of that. But the point he raises is that, man, you go and try to research when some of these events happen. And you even said inheritance. You can't easily get property in Old Valley Park. A lot of these folks inherited and all of that. I'm sure many of them got a lot of stories about the history of Valley Park and it being so homogenous. That being said, uh, the... Well, let me ask you something. Let me ask you about this. You've probably talked on your show about the efforts to ban books and, and, uh, and to prohibit critical race theory and African-American history. And uh, I imagine that's been a topic you've covered. Um, this is, this is the, the policy of motivated ignorance. You know, this is attempting to ensure that future generations lack the capacity to think deeply and critically about things like uh, the history of slavery and, uh, and uh, lynching and the, and the legacy and the, the problem of white supremacy. So, you know, I don't think it's uh, it, it's a a kind of you know abstract uh, uh, far-flung notion to describe um, a problem of motivated ignorance in American political culture. We see it right before our very eyes 
uh, in the policy proposal. Oh, hang on a second, Dr. Ward. You tricked me because you said you had a question, and you did. You just made a lot of statements. I was finishing my well, point. Well, my the question point is, was, isn't that, isn't that, isn't that a, 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 an example of an attempt to maintain ignorance? No. All of that, like I said, you are just, I don't know if it's a, a symptom of being more comfortable, but that this is something, and it's not just you. This is widespread, and I pointed that out for listeners. I don't really hear that phrase, willful ignorance, used any other time except for exculpating individuals classified as white of just saying that they're practicing racism and lying, which I think is much more accurate as opposed to pussyfooting it and euphemisms and confusing Mm. non-white people. The point I was making, James Lowen, he said specifically... And even talking about all of this, he said when he went to do research about all of this, he said, dang, sometimes I would go to research the newspapers and such, and the dates when they purged all the Negros would be missing. Now, in my view, these types of act, that's not willful ignorance. That's not, no, we're not going to teach you all that. That is, we're practicing white supremacy racism. White people are deceptive, so we can go and lie we can say whatever we want to about what happened on these dates or this event. We can lie. We don't even know nothing about what you mean. The Nick, what? That, no. Are you serious? They ran the Nick. Oh, my Lord. I could. They lie. We have master deceivers on the planet. And one of the ways master deceivers operate, we just never say that they lie. We make up all of these. Like I said, for if it were John Buckner. We would not be saying if he told us I didn't rape nobody that this was motivated ignorance, this was willful ignorance, that Mr. Buckner is misinterpreting the world. We'd say he's a lying nigra. I don't understand. And I looked in your reports. You do, do you use the term white people lie? Or even, matter of fact, erase the first two terms. Just L-I-E. Do you use that term in any of your reports, Dr. Ward? Um, I would have to go and do a word search on all my articles. I don't know. I'm sure it appears somewhere. I did I mean, a word you know. search. I do not see the word <laughs> lie at all. And it's not, it's, this yes, isn't even is. a personal indictment of you. This is widespread. It's like you cannot say people classified as white lie to practice racism when clearly. That is what it is, and it would be way more accurate than because all of this is just pussy. And really, it's helping to maintain the system of white supremacy racism because it makes it seem like they're just naive. They're like I think of children as being ignorant, like, oh, you don't know your ABCs. We'll work on that. That is not the case with <laughs> matter of fact, man. Wait a minute. <laughs> wait a minute, Dr. Ward. We're going to stop pussyfooting. What is my fit? Because I had read. I was ready to talk about legacies of racial violence, clarifying and addressing the presence of the pe- <sighs> Forget all of that, man. What is my favorite subject? From insult to estrangement and injury, the violence of racist police jokes. You co-authored this with our homie, Dr. Raul Perez, was with us last year, his book, the souls of white jokes i think we talked about oh my god this is one of my favorites for this very subject matter white ignorance and the racist jokes what brought you to the study of racist jokes dr ward 
uh, Raul did. Uh, actually, Raul was a graduate student at UC Irvine, University of California, Irvine, where I taught for 10 years. And, and, uh, and he, and he uh, asked me to work with him as an advisor on his, on his uh, what was at the time, a, a dissertation project on, on, on racist humor. And, and I was excited to, to, to meet him. And, and you know, we, we went on to become collaborators and good friends, but, but that's, that's how it started. Um, and I think he, he, he uh, reached out to me because I was doing work on, as I talked about earlier, on racialized violence and, and you know, jokes are a form of, again, racist jokes are a form of racialized violence. Um, so, yeah, that's how that happened. You all right. Who's the lead author on this here uh, report? You or Dr. Perez? Dr. Perez is the lead author. Gotcha. Okay. You all right. Uh, Drawing on Bordeaux's 2001 notion of symbolic violence and Galtung's 1990 concept of cultural violence, we argue that racist humor in law enforcement informs a normative orientation of racism and racial abuse in policing. Racist humor fosters the social acceptability of prejudice and discrimination among officers by normalizing a culture of dehumanization that legitimizes structural and direct violence. We've talked about racist jokes for way over a decade. When I read a paragraph like that, two questions. Number one, I've said for years, these racist jokes, and even what I'm reading here, it makes it seem like for people who are classified as white, the practice of racism is fun. And this is a part of the bonding for the racial construct of what it means to be classified as white. Am I interpreting this correctly, Dr. Ward? What do you think? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think racist jokes, sexist jokes, I mean, these, you know, uh, uh, homophobic, you know, all these jokes that, um, that deal with the politics of difference are ways we learn about uh, we we uh, communicate our values regarding uh, difference, and um, and we are socialized into an understanding of what difference means. Um, I think consciously and subconsciously. So you know, absolutely, and you know, and the, and the, I think one of the reasons I was particularly interested in working with Raúl on this piece was that. You know, I was just getting frustrated by seeing all these reports in the media about um, racist jokes among police where you have these police uh, scholars and these people who study policing uh, being cited saying, oh, they don't matter. You know, this, this, is, this is irrelevant. This is just people letting off steam. It's a high pressure, you know, profession and. Um, what harm can a joke, you know, what, 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 what's the harm in a joke? And so we, we, uh, we thought, okay, we need to weigh in on, on this. And, 
and uh, and that's and, and that's what. Uh, but yeah, I think generally speaking, it is a it is a site of racial socialization, and and, and um, which implies racist socialization. Mm. My my well, I even you quote uh, Dr. Fegan in the work uh, in your work, uh, even though you all quote a different text. Uh, we asked Dr. Fegan, and he made it explicit, Dr. Fegan, a white man, racist suspect, uh, and he said, it is overwhelming. Most of the, it's not like this is uh, equal opportunity, mocking, bashing with the humor. It is overwhelmingly targeting black people. This is not some, oh, yeah, we're mocking LGBT and black people and everyone, people in wheelchairs and females and white women. No. The jokes are overwhelmingly targeting and not even just non-white black people. That was what Dr. Fegans and he had the journals to back it in his research. And you all do reference Dr. Leslie Pika, Joe Fegans. So, I mean, yeah, he made that explicit, no conflation at all. The second question, I said one of two, the second question. So when they're telling these racist jokes uh, we heard the one at the beginning like there is no way that no count Obama is going to be elected for another year what black dude can keep a job for four years uh, how can you share or be on the receiving end where you're supposed to get the punchline lol either or how can you as a individual classified as white be ignorant about white supremacy racism and you get the punchline of these racist uh, jokes Dr. Ward Uh, how can you saying me personally how can an individual classified as white Uh how could they they be be ignorant about racism what it is how it works and get the punchline of these jokes to share or to receive LOL these jokes. How could they be ignorant about racism, Dr. Ward? Yeah. Well first of all, I think you've 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 taken my, my comments about motivated ignorance, uh, very specific to the case of the uh of Buckner and, and that we were talking about and you know and and somehow extended those to um, my argument about all things related to racism, which is not uh, not accurate, but but in terms of the jokes, you know the the, the uh, uh, first of all, you can you there is ignorance about the meaningfulness of jokes. I mean, people do I think honestly believe that you know jokes are just jokes. You know, they don't really matter. But I think the what jokes what the the the, the humor and racist jokes largely uh, relates to the taboo of the, um, at least in the contemporary period, the taboo of the racist discourse in the joke. You know, things you're not supposed to say, uh, quote unquote. And so, yeah, people understand racism and uh, that and uh, its logic, and 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 that that's why they get the jokes. Um, uh, but what we're really focusing on this piece is how they they will they want to believe 
that, you know, people can peddle these racist jokes, exchange them, enjoy them, and not be, uh, and that has nothing, and that, that has nothing to do um, with the maintenance of a, of a, of a racist, uh, a, a racist uh, social system, you know, a larger societal system shaped by racism. Uh, and so we're trying to connect, we're trying to make it clear how those things are connected. For sure. Uh, one, I, I am extending the ignorance, uh, this theme of white people being ignorant, because uh, almost everyone, uh, this is the conclusion that they have come to, that white people, it's almost unanimous. We ask people this all the time. <laughs> Dr. Ward, who do you think is more informed about what racism, white supremacy is, and how it works? Do you think individuals classified as white are more informed about racism or do you think people classified as not white are more informed about what racism white supremacy is and how it works? I think people who study white supremacy and racism are most informed in terms of what it is and how it works. Um, I think that uh, people who are in, in those people are of various race, ethnic backgrounds, um, nationalities, and um, you know, and I think, and I think there's a lot of misunderstanding in the society about what racism is and how it works. Yeah, including you know this widespread belief that racism is by by and large a thing of the past. You know, and, and Hang on a second, Doctor Mills, because I, I did want to make my point. You didn't answer my question. If I mean, if you don't want to answer it, I that's fine. Answer your question. No, so you, you just said the people. You said people who study. I mean, even that. Who do you think? What's your assessment? Is it mostly white people who study racism, white supremacy, or is it mostly non-white people? Given your assessment, you just made that statement. I couldn't say. I mean, I think it's. Um, I couldn't say. I would say. Uh, that among non-white people who who do research in the humanities and social sciences and so on, uh, in other fields, um, there's a higher proportion who focus on race and racism than than is the case by far, probably than is the case among whites in those fields. But okay. uh, but like that, every that's, field, that's uh, whites 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 dominate all these fields. So you know how many uh, what the total balance count is? I don't know. Okay, that I feel like is we've been on for over 15 years. You are one of the very few people who has had difficulty answering that question. Most people will just give an Good. answer at one point and I proceed. I get a certificate for that. Most, most of the people overwhelmingly, white and non-white, overwhelmingly. And it, it's right in line. Really, you don't get a certificate because you're very close to what they say. The overwhelming majority of people, they say, in fact, exactly what you say white people are ignorant non-white people are the ones who study this non-white people are more informed white people are ignorant they say exactly what you say it's just they normally answer the question immediately with regards to John Buckner sir hang on sir hang on sir hang on sir we're going to have to wrap this up because this is deteriorating into well if you could let me finish my point sir because I Hang on a second, sir. Let me get in one of our calls. And I do want to finish my point because I've not interrupted you. You said, I don't know. You said it's deteriorating. I hope I can make a, a point that maybe differs from yours. I've been courteous. Have I been rude or discourteous to you? 
No, uh, okay. you're not being well, rude or discourteous. I think you're just not listening to what I'm saying. Well, let me finish my point then, because with regards to John Buckner and in, in your written reports, like I said, you didn't use the term lie at all. You said uh, misrepresentation, willful igor- ignorance, motivated ignorance. You used that term a lot. Now, you were talking in the context of John Buckner, and you just made it explicit. That doesn't necessarily extend to everything. I said, and even you mentioned the late Charles Mills, and you quote him in your work talk doing the same thing, talking about the ignorance, willed ignorance of white people. And I'm just pointing out, I don't think that's the most accurate term. And then with my question, most people think white people are ignorant about racism, and that's why this problem persists. I'm submitting with the racist jokes exactly, exactly what you just told us, even with the taboo aspect of it. You can't be ignorant about racism, white supremacy, and you understand you're not supposed to say these jokes. You can't be ignorant about white supremacy, racism, and even grasp why these are supposed to be funny. You can put that in quotes, what's funny about, you know all of this all of that requires what I even read in the report earlier a very complex sophisticated and inherited knowledge what it means Mm -hmm. to be white and all that entails that's what I'm submitting the racist jokes I think just makes it crystal and the fact that you all even include in your work this is not just the police this is widespread in white that's why that's why I put the Kobe Bryant and give it to Kobe Bryant played for the Lakers NPR played a report <clears throat> it was the same year Dr. Perez was with us where he uh, they reported racist jokes are searched on par with the number of times people searched the Los Angeles Lakers that's one I always share just to let that rest Bron James Kobe Bryant Magic Johnson on par with how often people search white people search racist jokes again that is not ignorance about white supremacy racism that's just the point that I'm making hopefully based on evidence even some of your work I hope I've been courteous just get if you were going to depart we did have a person who had a question is it acceptable to get a question in really quick sure okay let's see a person who dialed in uh, last four digits, 2979-2979. Jeff, a question for Dr. Jeff K. Ward. Uh, good evening, Gus, and to the guest. Is it Dr. Ward? Yeah. Oh, thank you. Uh, so I have three questions. Uh, the first two are pretty much yes or no uh, answer, yes or no responses, so it would be quick. Uh, but just to get to the point the host was making about words, uh, I find that it, words are important, and especially to solve this problem begins with the way we think, speak, and act about the problem. So my first question was, you are, are you use the phrase motivated ignorance and willful ignorance. Uh, do you believe, are, first, are you familiar with oxymorons? Yes. Uh, do you believe those those phrases are oxymorons? Motivated ignorance is an oxymoron? 
Yeah, co uh, two contradictory words. Yeah, two contradictory words. Um, I could see. Yeah, I I could see why you would. Why? Yeah, I could see. I could think of it as an oxymoron. Yeah. Okay. Uh, the next question: uh, In discussions about racism, should oxymorons be avoided for clarity? Uh, well. Let me let me say this about oxymorons. Uh, the motivation and the ignorance uh, are uh, they're, they're referencing slightly different things. So I could see why they would be read. That would be read as an oxymoron. I think the, the whole point of the term is to is to try to describe the. Uh, 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 the pathos of white supremacy, you know, the pathology, which is um, a kind of determination to be ignorant about something. Um, so, you know, I think the, uh, generally speaking, things that don't make sense shouldn't be used to explain things, but I think that the construct of motivated ignorance makes sense. Okay, th thank you for the response. I, I don't believe you answered my question, so I'll just state it again. Uh, in okay. discussions about racism, should oxymorons be avoided for clarity? Uh, I think that, yeah, sure. Oxymorons should be avoided for clarity, uh, especially when they're not, they're, they're not helpful. Okay, <laughs> thank you. And then my last, my last question, this is uh, kind of a two-part question, but really the first part sets up the last part. So, uh, you know, based on the discussion tonight, uh, do you see any issues with the way racism is discussed? For example, if white people, people classified as white, continue to claim to be ignorant about racism and non-white people continue to, I guess, accept that, uh, how, how should non-white people respond? How should non-white people respond? Yes. I think first of all, well, I, I'm not sure how non-white people should respond. I think white people have a responsibility to uh, uh, to address their ignorance about white supremacy, uh, and uh, and there's ample opportunity to do that. There's a lot of also a lot of effort to uh, uh, to to discourage and to uh, and to 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 distort and uh, mislead white Americans with respect to the reality of white supremacy. So I'm not sure what the responsibility is for non-whites, but I think that fundamentally, white folks have to um, have to. Uh, uh, address this problem of, uh, of ignorance, to be motivated to address that problem of ignorance. Okay, thank you. And I guess as a follow-up to that, to that response, uh, is there any evidence that would suggest white people, people classified as white collectively, have any desire to no longer be ignorant about racism or to essentially end the system of racism, white supremacy. Is there any evidence of that? Sure. There's a whole long history of, of, 
anti-racist mobilizing among people classified as white uh, throughout the history of this country and, uh, and elsewhere in the world. Uh, and, you know, that, that, that there's never been enough, but, uh, but uh, historically and today, you have many uh, people classified as white who are, uh, who are committed to anti-racism, including to uh, uh, deepening their understanding of how white supremacy works and to, and to uh, attempting to dismantle um, uh, white supremacy. There, included within that is uh, some increasing work, you know, that's very important, I think, on uh, that's pointing to the ways that uh, that average white Americans are um, are uh, themselves harmed by uh, by uh, the politics of uh, of white supremacy. I'm thinking about this work uh, in public health on so dying of whiteness, how, how uh, white support for public policies that are, you know, measures that are rooted in racial animus, you know, support for lax gun laws and opposition to access to quality medical care and um, and uh, public education is contributing to premature death among white Americans in those places. And so, you know, I think there's a lot of evidence of um of that, of that happening, uh, uh, I think it's very clear. I see. Fascinating. Uh, Gus, do I have a chance for one last question? Uh, hey, since he gave me an opportunity to unmute, yes, sir. I just want to say I am so uh, confused because I thought maybe I didn't hear it correctly, but I thought he was asking about evidence white people being opposed to and somehow or not supporting the system of racism, white supremacy. And he concluded his response talking about uh, dying of whiteness and all of that. That is not an example of white people working against racism, because that is something that we've talked about in detail. Dr. Berkeley France was with us, a white epidemiologist. She told us in detail about white people who were very informed about white supremacy, racism said, Oh, I know no Obamacare, I'm going to die. Get my will together. Ride or die racism. She did not give us one example, and I mean not one example, of white people saying that they're against racism, and I'm with Obama. In fact, it was white people that said, shh, I do support Obamacare, but I can, shh, I will get in trouble with white people. Shh. Dr. Berkeley no, I'm, I'm talking about the author of the book being a white person writing about white supremacy, attempting to make it clear to other white people that white supremacy is uh, is contributing to premature death. I'm not talking about um, uh, the you know the, the response to it, um, but I think there's a you know I think the the, the, the look at the the history of well, freedom movements of abolition. Um, uh, and, and other movements, there are examples of uh, people classified as white who've been uh, who've been opposed to the uh, system of of, uh, of, uh, of white supremacy. And you know, and again, as I said, not nearly enough. Uh, but but the the fact is that, that that phenomena exists in the world, and that was the question. Caller, did you have another question, sir? Yeah, my my last question uh, for Dr. Ward, and thank you for taking my questions. Uh, who is responsible for the 
establishment, expansion, maintenance, and refinement of the system of racism, white supremacy. Would that be white people, people classified as white, or non-white people? Who's responsible? I yes. mean, this is, you know, uh, people classified as white created the system to, uh, to, to advance their interests. And, you know, and that system was created uh, long, long ago and has been uh, maintained and modified and opposed and uh, contested and changed and so forth by all of us. And, and, uh, and you know, and we, you know, every generation faces this uh, uh, challenge of uh, dealing with this system of white supremacy. So the creation is a long, you know, I think the creation is a long, long time ago. And the, the uh, and, and who upholds it is predominantly uh, white folks. But there are also sympathizers, you know, people who are, uh, who for various reasons, who are not classified as not white, um, uh, have, uh, have decided that it's within their interest to also maintain that system of, of uh, or at least not to to uh, to uh, oppose it. Uh, so you know, I think many are implicated. That's my feeling, at least. Okay. Th thank you. Thank you for thank you for your response. Yeah. Thank you. Much obliged, sir. I just want to make sure before I let you go, I had two last questions. I just, I didn't hear correctly. Or did you say that uh, this, this system of racism, white supremacy that has been contested by all of us? Did you say that? Well, you know, I'm talking about the history of, of, our, of, of uh, race, racism as a social construct goes back, you know, centuries. And it's been contested by... Um, uh, uh, diverse groups of people over the span of that time. Okay, so I guess did you say contest? I just was that was kind of a yes or no. Did you say contested by all of us? So you did say that. Yes. Okay, I was just making sure that you know what I heard. That's all. Thank you for confirming. So well, my I don't know what you mean by all of us. I, I think you. I think you. I don't mean all of us are always contesting systems of white supremacy. I mean, the, I mean that the opposition has come from many quarters, uh, including uh, African Americans, people of African descent in other parts of the world. Uh, you know, uh, context of struggles around colonialism. Uh, you know, across the global South. So you know, it's a. It's a. It's a world system, and it's been contested across the world by uh, diverse groups of people, is what I meant. Thank you, sir. That was two times I'll give a thanks, because I was not sure of what you said, and then I also did not mean, did not know what you meant when you said that. So thank you for the clarification. Um, the you, When you told us that you grew up in a household, black people, um, did they tell <laughs> jokes about white people that you remember? Um, I'm trying to think. I mean, I don't remember my parents telling jokes at all, but my, you know, my friends and, uh, I'm trying to remember, you know, I'm sure, I, you know, honestly, I can't remember, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, uh, 
just past 50 years old. So, you know, I don't remember, um, none that, none that I specifically remember, you know, I know that, uh, that, you know, race and humor were, you know, not necessarily in the form of jokes, but, um, you know, names people would be called and um, that sort of thing. But, uh, yeah, I don't remember. Why do you ask? Uh, I mean, well, we were talking about racist jokes and there are white scholars uh, who have quantified white people search racist jokes for about, on average, about the same number of times that people would do a search for the Los Angeles Lakers professional basketball team. Uh, we've had Dr. Mm-hmm. Vegan, Raul Perez, where you have reams and reams and thousands of the Dr. Joe Fegan talked about in the diaries, but this just goes on and on and on. And given everything that black people are subjected to and that we've dealt with and all of this, like I just find that peculiar that black people don't sit around and mock white people. Uh, and in fact, for a group that brags about, we know how to tell some mama jokes and to do the dozens and all that. Like, we don't sit around and talk about white people's mama and, you know, Bob McCullough, your mama is so whack. And no, we don't by and large. I just, I'm just point. If anything, I'm just making an observation that seems to be happening mm. on the plantation. How peculiar. Uh, do mm. you think, uh, your skin complexion, since you talked to us before about that and the fact that you have a biological white parent, do you think that has an impact on how you think about, uh, individuals classified as white? Uh, no, not really. I don't think so. Okay. Uh, I think about, you know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a social researcher. I think about these things through the lens of, uh, you know, other scholars' works I've read and the, and the, um, and the, the work I've done primarily. I'm also a, you know, a, a, you know, a, a, a human in a racialized social system subject to the same influences as everyone else. So would I say that, um, there's no effect or, you know, um, no, I mean, as a sociologist, I wouldn't say that either. Um, but I can't tell you what it is. You know, I think it's, um, certainly not something I'm, I'm, I'm particularly conscious of. Okay. Much obliged. When you get your book, maybe where are you, where are you, I'm just curious where are you based? Cause you, you mentioned you're far, far away from uh, St. Louis. Where are you based? Seattle, Washington. So two time zones oh. uh, to the West. Uh-huh. Okay. Uh, did I, did I, cause you before were sounded like you were riled up. Did I do something incorrect? Did I misbehave in our discussion this evening, Dr. Ward? Uh, no, I mean, I was just, you know, I'm frustrated by the, uh, what I felt is a mischaracterization of what I was saying. And maybe it was a misunderstanding. I wasn't clear when what I was saying, but, uh, but no, I, I appreciate the opportunity to, to be with you. And, uh, I think you've been, you've been courteous and I've enjoyed our, uh, our conversation. It's gone off, uh, about two hours now. So I'm going to wrap up and say goodbye, but, um, but no, I don't think, I don't think there was, um, you know, I think, I think I was just responding to the, to the, the direction the conversation was going. Okay. It seemed to be around the white ignorance, uh, portion. And I do stick on, you know, what I said, cause you did say white people were in a variety of ways about white people being ignorant with John Buckner. And that is pretty, 
it's very common uh, that people, that's their conclusion. But much obliged for your patience. Uh, again, we spoke with uh, Dr. Jeff K. Ward. I did, I even checked while we were speaking before we wrapped, just because I think you write about words. I checked all of the reports that I read. This is not all of his work, just, you know, what I was prepared to talk about. Uh, the word lie, the word dishonest, not used at all. I think that is significant. I think those are the most accurate terms frequently to describe what's happening. And it's those are infrequently employed to describe white people lie dishonest. Much obliged, Dr. Ward. I have learned so much. Keep up the uh, great scholarship, sir. Thank you, sir. Thank you again for the invitation. For sure. For sure. Dr. Jeff K. Ward, uh, author of many uh, outstanding reports, really dealing with the history of racial violence, white terrorism, uh, Missouri and beyond. Uh, we will keep an eye out for your scholarship. Keep up the great work. Have a great evening, sir. Context of white supremacy. Man, we will take a quick break. Be right back, hopefully. Uh, folks were able to learn a tidbit. You can let old Gus T know we've had this discussion before. We've had guests on the program, and I mean, hey, you know, it's pretty widespread where people have said Gus T is rude, uncouth, discourteous, all of that in uh, discussions might be true. Not a nice dude. Worthless Negro. Undignified. 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 All of that said, at the end of the day, we are in a system of white supremacy racism. Now, as a black male, privileged though I may be, how well behaved should I be? Any hoodles, we will take a quick break. See if folks have thoughts to share. I'll uh, make some of my points that I think are important. We will be here tomorrow. White guest will confirm. Did that today. We'll confirm uh, for tomorrow uh, and then give out the times for the rest of the week. Always an opportunity. Hopefully, I won't say that. We make the effort to always be constructive. Sometimes we are. Sometimes we aren't. Hopefully we were today. Take a quick break, break and we will be right back. Context of white supremacy. Got another term on there, VGQ. What does that mean? Victims guarantee qualification. <clears throat> now, that keeps you from getting into arguments with other black people, particularly on television, which I get sick of that. Black people shouting. You know, we get into our ghetto thing. Once we get on television and get wound up, and we start all yelling at once, and the racists sit there smugly and just look. They watch the tennis match, so to speak. Right. And black people are shouting each other down, talking about, you don't know what you're talking about, and so on, so on, so on, so on. We go into our Amos and Andy and Sapphire Act. Okay. BGQ means victims guaranteed qualification. Guaranteed qualification to do what? to give your opinion on anything about race. Don't care what it is. If you're on there with uh, Minister Farrakhan or 
you on there with uh, Mike Tyson? Are you on there with uh, Miss, what's her name, Williams? The lady that had him put in, you know, recommended that he be put in jail. Are you on there with uh, anybody? See, don't cut the other black person down. Now, I don't even like that term, brother and sister, even though it's been around for about 30 years. But I ain't, I ain't going to talk about the brother here, you know. No. See, we haven't reached that stage where we can do that. See, we got we got to crawl before we walk, and but we don't miss any steps. Don't say you are what you're not. Don't say you feel something that you don't really feel. You don't really feel that he's a brother. I usually use the expression, I don't like anybody in here. I say that to all audiences. I haven't been taught to like anybody. I've been taught to dislike people. I've been taught that. And then they are taught to dislike me, so it's just compounded disliking. I haven't even got to love yet. All right. So what we do is minimize conflict, try not to hurt each other. So a certain thing, that's what a code is for. It's a stopgap. It keeps me from saying something against you. You say, well, don't you agree with uh, what this person just said down here on the other end and whatnot? That person has VGQ, Mr. Donahue. I keep using him because he's one of the most prominent uh, TV people. Right. But the main thing you do is try to stay off of a radio program or TV program or even a neighborhood stage program, you might say, where you spend your time shouting back and forth at other black people. Nothing is getting done there. And when it's done on television, a lot of black people just get up from the TV set and go on in the kitchen somewhere. Once that shouting starts, yeah, they get disgusted. Say, you know, they say, oh, here we go. They started off okay, but now they are, you know, they're doing a job on each other, and I don't even want to hear it. So just don't do it. And you cut it off. The cutoff point is that person has victim's guaranteed qualification. You spell it out what it means meaning the person can say anything about race that they want to, and I can say anything about it that I want to. You, you are guaranteed that. You earn that as a victim, simply by being a victim. Now, if a white person says something, that's something else. Oh, man. White guests only. White guests only. Oh, I'm always ready to reach through the computer and strangle someone when you all send me emails. Hey, Brother Gus, found this here black brother, this here black sister. Don't you have all that? <laughs> White guests only. Non-white people are not really interested in talking to Gus T. Dr. Ward, did he sound like Gusty, you are my black brother. Talk to you forever. Love me some Gusty. Did he sound like he's going to be a fan of the cows? Regular listener? Tune in here. We got to say that's what he sounded like to you. Not being discourteous. Just I'm asking sincerely. That's not what it is. <laughs> like, let's just we're not brothers, sisters, homies, white guests only. Jiminy Crickets. Now, we will have white guests tomorrow. We'll confirm. Same time, 8 p.m. Eastern 
5 p.m. Pacific, get to revisit some of the same themes. Ah, so excited. And then Book Club Thursday, we will wrap up Mike Swango 007. Same time, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Cows always comes on at the same time, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. The person who writes reviews at Podchaser under the handle Crazy Lover. I would really appreciate it if you could delete your comment way back it I think was the end of October excuse me end of did I get it right the first no end of September uh, we had Dr. Brian on the program and you wrote that he was only with us for I think like an hour or so or 30 minutes that was it it was not correct you wrote that he was with us for 30 minutes and he was with us actually for over an hour. It is false advertising. People always misrepresent, or I won't say always, but it is very common to misrepresent lie about Gusty context of white supremacy accuracy. He was there for over an hour. Not that was the point I made. He was going to be with us for 30 minutes, but I had to work and get him here for an extra so he was here for like an hour 15 75 minutes uh, to get more information about racism white supremacy in Brazil so if you could delete and or edit I would be super appreciative crazy <laughs> what kind of that's even embarrassing crazy like that's anywho VGQ VGQ now our guest for today's broadcast one racial classification I did post online at until justice uh, I asked just based on photographs do people think Dr. Ward white person non-white person and it was then I think even some people said dang kind of depends on which photograph you see which same thing I said some of the pictures he looks a little bit more pale some of the pictures he has a little bit more color so it was kind of challenging uh, to pick out exactly, you know, mm, what, what what do we think? What do we think? Mm, mm, mm. Uh, she said white parent, non-white parent biologically and then adopted by black parents. Wow. Wow. Have to go back to get the exact tally of folks who thought he was uh, classified as non-white, but always important to get racial classification. Uh, and then even the detail that he shared that alone wow worthy of a book and then going for employment opportunities and them just looking at him and seeing a melanated black male in a suit he didn't say sagging reefer hanging out his mouth gold teeth tattoo on his face black dude in a suit presumably with no gold teeth never can tell he looked at the black dude looked at non-white male with a white parent black kid back that right there is racial hierarchy as well that is the system of white supremacy racism Dr. Welsing says mellow yellow brown stick around black get back that is hierarchy that term once again you have it for the non-white people and the white people some are more powerful than others meaning racists individuals classified as white but that was 
fascinating. And even at the beginning of the conversation when he talked about internalization of racism and how other non-white people perceive skin color, he was ready to go in that he was ready to roll about how black people uh, you aren't really black. He was ready to roll. Now, I don't remember him giving us one example of a white person being racist against him. Not one. If I'm in error, my apologies to Dr. Ward. I'm a Negro and maybe I didn't listen, but I don't remember him giving an example of white people messing him over and doing him wrong and him being, you know, willing to easily give it. But I mean, at the very beginning, it was me. Black people, you like skin. You're not really black, man. Black, black people clown, ridicule other black people about their blackness all the time. You can be the complexion of Barack Obama, Dick Gregory, Lil Wayne, anywhere in between, born in Nigeria, born in Alabama, Georgia, Toronto, Japan, Istanbul, you pick the location. Your negritude, Africanity, Afro-Americanness will be questioned. Making a flat statement. Matter of fact, if anybody here can say truthfully, I am classified as black and no one has ever ridiculed me about my blackness, so-called. You can let us know. That would be fascinating. But it's pretty widespread. Uncle Tom, sellout, Sam, it's pretty widespread. That notwithstanding, uh, maybe code number one's the racial classification Man, I would love to know the circumstance. What Dr. Welsing said, when you play around with it. Anyway, what were the circumstances of this in the so-called 1970s? What? What? Anyway, what they call it, epigenetics? Anyway, uh, they said, or at the very beginning, I said sometime we got a white guest only policy. So if Gus T makes an error and we get someone who is racially ambiguous, or if I break the rule and we do have a non-white person on, I said, now the rotate is not, I don't ask them my definition. No, sir. No, ma'am. <clears throat> Let's hear. Your, because I mean you publish and talk about this you have to have the definition for this concept yes even has it in writing system of white supremacy what does that mean no definition how, how many times have we heard that from non-white people classified as black all kinds of scholars uh, degrees, lofty positions, published reports and all of that don't even have a definition of racism. Dr. Eddie Moore Jr. is in that group. Whole white privilege conference in operation for a decade. 
giving out college credit. No definition of racism or white privilege. What are you even talking about? That and incidentally, I submit when you don't have a definition of racism, that's how it's very easy to get into a lot of abstractions and metaphors. We're going to be very ambiguous, indirect about how we talk about this and racists love this because contrary to popular opinion, individuals classified as white are not ignorant about white supremacy racism. They are scientific about it. And in fact, that passage, I'm going to read it again because it is pretty precise. What does it mean to be white? The brief examples illustrate that post-emancipation so-called reassertions of white social, economic, and political dominance involved more than a transition from one system to another, but trust by the disenfranchisement of black Americans, they illustrate how law was reconfigured as a resource of racial dominance and that complex networks, strategies, and frames imbricated in racist legal mobilization both change and persist through time. This evolution has relied on state and non-state actors working on several fronts within and around law, including legislators, courts, police, vigilantist groups, and industry, all areas of people activity, working in tandem or on parallel tracks to manage a pliable system of white supremacy older than the nation itself. Very well written. <laughs> what does it mean to be white? can't be ignorant <laughs> you got to be informed to do all of that mobilizing and configuring and transferring of white power for centuries anyway uh, let's see last few uh, points no definition can't emphasize enough uh, he said that he gives white people the benefit of the doubt that stood out to me because that is explicitly a part of my code. You never give white people the benefit of the doubt. Never. Especially in matters of white supremacy racism. <laughs> that paragraph I just read is why. John Buckner, any of these other situations, it is not accident. It is not happenstance. Not at all. Let's see. <laughs> the he mentioned Brian Stevenson. Man, I will tell you, Gus T. Renegade. I'm worthless Negro. 
undignified, but I will stand by my record. I do not come on this program and talk bad about non-white people and call them names and all that. Even I'll take today, man. I did not interrupt uh, Dr. Ward. I did not call him names. I did not ridicule his points. I did not talk over him. I didn't try to... (laughs) I can't even think of it. I didn't ask him any so-called slippery questions. I was sincere in asking questions. Uh, And even sometimes I felt like he was just, he talked over me, right? Just to, you know, do more talking. He said one time he had a question. He didn't even have a question. He just talked and talked and talked. I felt he did that sometimes. Even then being courteous, I felt like he got really upset. Maybe even in his defense of white people and me pointing out, this is not ignorance. This is lying. That is the most accurate term. It seemed like he got very defensive about that, even suggesting that I was being rude. Like if he had just said, you know, we've been talking for an hour or I think at that point, maybe an hour, 20 minutes or whatever. And, you know, I'm done. Black brother got things to do. Deuces. But it was it was sounding as though he was suggesting that I had misbehaved in some way. I had been curt. Many people say that about Gus T. No problem there. I reaffirmed, asked him later. And he said he thought the conversation was deteriorating. What does that mean? I said the same thing before he left. Hey, man, (laughs) I simply made a point. This is not ignorant. I don't even hear these. I mean, wow, they just make up even motivated ignorance, determined ignorance. I don't hear Leroy and Jamal. It'll just be their ignorance. And they'll leave it at that. And it's not no willed and motivated and all that. And then they might tack on that. They uh, are are liar, no good lying and dumb and ignorant and all that. But I mean, lie will be included in there, too, with Leroy and Jamal only with white people. And Dr. Curry talked about this eloquently with us. All of this gives some sense of naivete to individuals classified as white. They just don't know. They don't know about what happened to old Mr. Buckner. They don't know about racism, white supremacy. If we just inform them properly about this, they will do right. That does not make, I could just reread that paragraph. That does not make sense at all. (laughs) Like we are very informed about this. Incidentally, white people write all these books and reports about a lot of this material. He mentioned Jonathan Metzl dying of whiteness, writing a book, about racism does not constitute an effort against racism for a white author. You have got to be joking with the amount of books that white people have written at this point. This problem would have been solved a long time ago. We've talked to tons, more than I can count. Individuals classified as white who write lots of lame books, sometimes constructive books, about racism. That in and of itself does not mean you are against white supremacy racism almost felt like we were going to get a John Brown homage in there at any rate he mentioned Brian Stevenson I'm very proud of our record there are lots of non-white people who you know do not support Gusty Renegade and the cows think my work is worthless lame not even work just wasting time disparaging good white people wasting people like Dr. Ward's time and energy that might be true That said, I do not come on this program and would challenge anyone 
do you hear me come on here and call out those people who say the cows is lame and whack gusta nobody do you hear me come on here call out those non-white people do you know what Leroy said about the cows do you know what you know Kwame said about do you know what look do you hear me nope problem is white people keep it pushing we were supposed to have Brian Stevenson as a guest on the program contacted him said sure give me some dates I send him dates and such for the program ghosts me do the young people say that when the person they don't respond you never hear from them again ghosts me never hear from them again but adds me to their mailing list the equal justice initiative man what the world I never came on the program talk bad about him don't have anything bad to say about him now that there is a statement of fact the problem is white people Mr. Stevenson classified as a black male who has done a lot of constructive work to get black males out of greater confinement man I have thought about that so if I was on death row someplace and they gave Mr. Stevenson my case hmm I knew that nigger <laughs> I don't know would I get assistance like man I'm innocent mm. Mm. <laughs> give me the fuck mm. mm. maybe he would help me he would just do equal justice in this do the right thing help the person who needs the most help Gus T in that group but I don't know like is that the coon from the kid hmm some things are supposed to run their course next case anyway right on for Brian Stevenson get out some more black males unjustly I told you just played that report for Missouri black males getting uh, lethal capital punishment convictions in Missouri many of them from Bob McCullough that's the attorney no true bill but the officer white officer who killed Michael Brown Jr. in 2014 that was Bob McCullough they mentioned him by name and saying that he had I think it was at eight cases black people black males where they had death row convictions and they got overturned equal justice initiative Mr. Stevenson may have been involved in that case too I don't know they got the monuments similar to what he was talking about with uh, the lynching of John Buckner. They put the monuments up to uh, in Alabama. Many of the black people who were lynched. I think we had at least one of our victims down in Alabama talked about visiting the project and how it impacted them seeing all of that. Any hoodles? Uh, anything else I would get in? I definitely think him skin complexion, white parent definitely has an impact on his view of how he we view white people. But that is rampant in the system of white supremacy racism many non-white people around the world even with four non-white grandparents think the exact same way about white people that they are ignorant about racism and we should just help them better think through this problem VGQ uh, let's see anything else we'll be here tomorrow 8pm Eastern 5pm Pacific let's see folks who listening in any uh, quick thoughts before we wrap up so I can prep for tomorrow folks who are with us we'll hear the folks who did not ask a question Uh, let's see 
Hey, Gus. Um, yeah, I, did, I didn't ask the question. You know, I just really, I just listened. I really didn't have too much to say, but, um, I, you know what I'm saying? I'm just, you know, I just kind of, it, it doesn't really amaze me, but um, I just find myself, I'm just listening to this and just listening to current events. Um, just just listening to like the reporting of what's going on in um, the region known as uh, Israel Palestine, and when you just and, and and I'm deliberately hearing white people just lie. You know, even when I just looked at them uh, grilling the uh, the Harvard. Uh, I don't know if it's Harvard or Yale, but the uh, I think uh, her last name is Gray, and I'm not sure if it's a doctor, gay, and I'm not sure if it's a doctor in front of her name, but just listening to them try to have her step down and, and just listening to the news outlets lie. I mean, white people are just so full of, um, you know, sugar, honey, iced tea. And, you know... And that was real important. And, and 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 you're right. I don't. I hear so many excuses, but I never hear them say, "No, no, they're they're lying or they lie," and they lie a lot. And they use these uh, these words to to minimize um, actually what they're doing. Um, it's you know it's 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 really just amazing. And that word that he he said, what did he say? He says uh, motivated ignorance. I'm like, what 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 is that? <laughs> you know, you just motivated ignorance. And just like you said, when I was younger, Gus, and I I, I can't remember the jokes, but I do remember jokes, and it was a few jokes that we used to tell, and I it, it would always go. Uh, you know, there was a white man, black man, Chinese man, fill in the blanks. And at the end of these jokes, if, when I remember, the joke used to always be on a black man, like always. I, I, I vaguely remember uh, two jokes. I can't really uh, say it in, in its entirety, but I do remember the punchline was basically, you know, something clowning black people, you know, and you're right. There was really never any jokes clowning white people. And, you know, so, and, and it's, it's just, it's, it's just amazing. Just, just the lies, you know? So yeah, that's, that's all I said. And yeah, you was, you was courteous Gus. And, and again, um, I must say due to conditioning, you know, I remember being introduced to the cows. And I used to be like, oh, man, Gus, like, why are you talking to that white woman like that? You know, I used to kind of cringe. But now, you know, I have evolved. I have learned more. And that the diet, it, it's healthy, you know, to challenge white people. And at times even call them out. And I think that in the system of white supremacy, it creates insecurity and fear. And us as victims, we have been accustomed and we are afraid to challenge white people and really call them out 
on their lives, on their um, obfuscation and omission, and you know, and 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 they're minimizing, you know. And and I use, you know, what Gus accuracy, accuracy, accuracy. Sometimes, you know, I got an eagle brain, and I'm not heard often. So a lot of times, your brain is moving faster than your mouth, and I messed up. Um, with the ac- ac- um, the acronym MOO. So I got to get it right, you know, program it in my brain computer. So when I do use it, I'm saying it correctly. It's minimizing. And I was talking to somebody and I said uh, mis- misinform or miseducation. So I got it wrong. So I have to do better. I close. Much obliged to all of us still learning, trying to do the best that uh, we can, I reckon. Um, Yeah, white people lie. That is, I submit a big deal. Let's see. Our caller, 2979, did you have commentary to share? Good evening, everyone. Uh, I found the discussion tonight to be very informative, very constructive. I I tuned in a little bit late. One of the questions I wanted to ask was whether or not he was a white person or a non-white person, but from what I gathered, he he is non-white with a white parent. Um, you know, I saw his picture. Uh, that's, that's what I kind of assumed was he was a non-white person with a white parent. Uh, so, and then also to add to the uh, list of words that are never, I, well, not commonly associated with people classified as white, and w- along with dishonest and lie, I think deception or deceive, that would have probably been another good word to see if he had in his, uh, his, in his article. Maybe I'll, I'll check that myself later. Uh, I, I also, so I asked the question about, you know, the oxymoron because I thought, well, I identified some time ago that willful ignorance, uh, motivated ignorance was one that I've never heard before. This is the first time I've heard that, that those two words used together, but always hear willful ignorance. And I identified, well, that, those are pretty, those are contradictory because you can't be willful, will, you can't be willful about something and also be ignorant about it at the same time. Cause in order to be willful about something, you have to be deliberate about it. And ignorance would suggest that you have no idea that about what you're doing. So that right there is an oxymoron. And he wouldn't, he didn't agree that, you know, lie rather than using, using those, those words, using, using the word lie would be more accurate. I think it would be more accurate. But, you know, is an oxymoron more, is that an accurate term to use? Two contradictory words to describe uh, an an act of racism? I I don't think so. So, you know, I wanted to kind of get that that perception from him or that, you know, that understanding from him, uh, which I... I believe he agreed with, but, you know, I think it took some time to get there. Um, Although he kind of wouldn't say it, you know, that, that those were, that those words are oxymorons and that oxymorons shouldn't be used in a discussion about racism. Uh, and then he also, 
came up in the discussion as well was he mentioned, you know, that there isn't really any evidence of this elaborate scheme by people classified as white to, you know, carry out racism, white supremacy. I believe I'm paraphrasing, but that did come up. And, you know, actually throughout the discussion, I thought that there were several um, examples uh, of this elaborate scheme. Uh, One of them being how the vast majority of guests that come on the program, white and non-white, often associate white people with being ignorant about racism. Uh, Many have used the term willfully ignorant as well. Uh, And I think, you know, that if, you know, 98% of the time that's happening, that's not a so-called coincidence. That's a pattern uh, that white people seem, people classified as white seem not keen on identifying Uh, Also, just the term willful ignorance as well, Uh, the fact that it's associated with white people, usually only associated with white people in discussions about racism, and the term itself, because, again, a number of guests who come onto the cows, and just from my personal experiences, that use that word, I think it, again, shows a pattern that this is that there's that there's a pattern going on it's so it must be elaborate because i don't maybe you know i i don't know i i i could be ignorant myself but there's not like there could be this communication channel that white people have established with themselves all over the planet that non-white people like myself don't know about and white people you know they are constantly sharing ideas and the what's new and and how to mistreat non-white people based on the basis of colors, you know, I, I don't know. Uh, and then also, again, another example being that white people are ignorant. I think, again, the vast majority, when asked that question, who is more informed about the system of racism, white supremacy, white or non-white people, again, the vast majority of people, white and non-white, say white people are. They, they, or they're the least, they're not informed. Non-white people are informed, which I guess for me suggests that white people are ignorant about racism. Um, So again, patterns there. I would, I would, the evidence to me would suggest that this is an elaborate scheme (laughs) or an elaborate plan. I don't know if that's the most accurate term to use, but there's something going on and it's elaborate because I don't know how so many uh, white people, people classified as white can come on to this program or just, you know, and everyday interactions all believe and use the same kind of language when we're talking about white people practicing racism, white supremacy. Um, yeah, and I also appreciate the follow-up on some of those questions as well. Um, some of those I, you know, so many words were being said, I couldn't keep track entirely of what and whether or not my answer, whether or not I was getting my answer to some of my questions, which again happens a lot uh, when asked when in discussions about racism, white supremacy. So thank you. Thank you for that as well. And um, yeah, that's, that's all I have. So thank you for taking my call. Yes, sir. That is not uh, an accident or a coincidence. That is by chance, uh, meaning confusion talk about racism what's supposed to happen 
confusion confusion every time where nothing gets done no problems are solved confusion you don't even have a better understanding of what we're talking about confusion that's what's supposed to happen that's what I said that's like so is there are there examples of white people that are working against right so we got a white man Jonathan Metzl writing a book dying of whiteness which really like I said like that confused me even more because man now I haven't read that book but we have talked about exactly the whole premise of that commitment to white supremacy racism we got all these opioids and rejecting of Obamacare we talked about all that in detail that right there is hey I value white supremacy racism over everything not whiteness white and even that right there he didn't say whites are dying of white supremacy then maybe but even then same thing I already said being classified as white and writing a book please please anyway white supremacy that's over everything so even if I you know oh well I don't have hell oh well <laughs> that's negro care you think I'm going that's, I got to live the rest of my life <laughs> thank goodness for nigger care <laughs> pick out my obituary right now and that's what they did that's not you know me just up here joking or whatever messing around like that's do- Dr. Berkeley friends she was with us at the end of last year that's exactly and I mean it's many folks they documented with might even I think that's in dying of white like I said I haven't read it but I'm pretty sure that's what he's talking about in the book if he accurately described it can't be anything else whiteness why the all of that obfuscation obfuscation deliberate willful man like why can't we just I had to ask like is that maybe that's not permitted because we had uh, Aya Gruber non-white female and I think she might have a white parent she says she uh, is racially ambiguous Uh, she was with us at the beginning of last year she said uh, oh I'm talking about the uh Oh, this it was the her book. It is the unintent. That's it. The word unintended. If you look at her, Aya Gruber, A Y A, Aya Gruber. She's on a lot of uh, Forty Eight Hours. The segments on uh, true crime. If people watch, you know what I'm talking about. Anyway, uh, she was with us last year, but her book title, Unintended Consequences. I think it's of white feminism or feminist whatever. But the word unintended. We spent a good. Uh, extremely important segment of the program at the very beginning talking about her editors insisted that unintended had to be there it couldn't be that this was willful and deliberate on the part of the agenda of white feminists to bring about all these laws that would be extraordinarily harmful to non-white They're like whoa 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 can't say that gotta put unintended gotta put unintended yeah gotta put unintended in there yeah 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 I agree go back in check out the archives but yeah is it are you not allowed to say that white people lie because i mean if that's in the rules like let me know but in my view like all of that is so because i mean they got such a and it seems like it's growing they got more and more motivated ignorance willful ignorance misinterpret the world misrepresentation distortions fictions corrupted like 
Okay, so okay, so 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 if we if we gotta use all of the implicit, unconscious by unintended so if we gotta use all of that, can we occasionally say white people lie? We don't have to say every single white person, but at least a good chunk of the time white people practice racism, white supremacy by lying. Again, if they got a law or something, like if that's a fine, if that's a jail sentence, please let me know. But that is a part of the confusion. We had a white guest some years back, 2010, I believe, white female. She used the metaphor. She said, hey, you can't wake up someone who is pretending to be sleep. Metaphor, meaning, hey, white people lie and say that, they, oh, I don't know nothing about no racer. What? Racer? Racer? I can't even say it. How you spell it? What is that? You can't wake up someone who is pretending to be asleep. White people lie and say that they're ignorant about racism. That's that is way more accurate and less confusing than willful ignorance, motivated ignorance, misrepresenting the misrepresenting the world, misrepresenting the world. Do you ever hear that for Leroy and Jim? Leroy has a tendency to misrepresent the world. Lakeisha, you know, she uh, has a tendency to, you know, distortions. That's not, they, they normally just say, you know, that Al Sharpton is a bald-faced liar. Hmm. Irie, did you have commentary to share before we wrap up? Can you hear me? Okay. Um, well, since you gave me the alert last night, I was interested in listening. But um, yeah, from he he wrong for that. Like that whole uh, run around, or excuse me, the ambiguity in the beginning about his racial classification. I was like, okay, this is not. I, don't, I didn't know if I could expect much honesty from him, from him. And I just wanted to express that, like. It was really pitiful to say that he's a, a, a so-called like learned person, learned person, or whatever. Like just, just say the facts. Like what's wrong with that? So at that point, I had determined that he had learned, or the white supremacists taught him very well how to uh, fabricate and um, you know just outright lie. And it's sad because he's even more of a victim for it. And I'm not. I don't think you would look at it that way. Um, so, yeah. Sorry for the experience or whatever, but top of the course, I was a little disappointed because I was going to ask about that article that you sent or whatever, and I decided against it once you started doing that. So, that's all. Dang. I had other reports like. Yeah, I felt like even even that with the Rick, because I mean, hey, if you study all this, you know, there. now he did say he hadn't looked at his birth certificate. Maybe that's true. Maybe it's not. He said he'd have to go look. But I mean, hey, if you're he said he's over 50, I mean, I would think you looked at your birth certificate. If you got a passport, left the country or filled out some forms, you have to mark racial classification so frequently uh, in this part of the world. Like, really? You've never <laughs> come on. You never filled out the census. Like, come on. Come on. Um yeah, there was a lot of snickering, too, which is another one. 
many of the non-white people we have been conditioned since this problem can't be solved and all the rest of it we are not very serious about addressing this problem and there was a lot of you know snickering uh throughout uh the broadcast that you know about things that were not really funny uh in addition to white ignorance white ignorance white ignorance white ignorance uh, and, and even his unwillingness to answer the question, who's more informed about racism, white people or non-white people, the vast majority of our guests gleefully, white and non-white, immediately almost say, oh man, non-white people are more informed. Oh yeah, white people are ignorant. Oh my goodness. They're ign- what is what they go through the whole motivated ignorance and welfare ignorance, misinterpret the world and misrepresentations and oh yeah, distortions and fabrications and blah, 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 blah and fictions and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, in, in speaking of report, man, he does have a report that he co-authored that shows the correlation between areas with lynchings and corporal punishment that I did think was constructive because it does show areas with higher concentrations of lynchings. These tend to be places that have uh, that show a worse, uh, more disparate impact uh, for black boys, specifically black children in general, and especially black boys, that they are going to be victims of some sort of in-school corporal punishment and that black children in general tend to be thought of as disciplinary problems more often and are subjected to yep. corporal punishment uh, in the limited areas. They don't even have corporal punishment in a whole lot of places, but even that is concentrated mostly in the regions that had uh, formal plantation type enslavement of black people. And then now it's black children disproportionately that still pay the price in the areas where they had that again, play around with sex joke is on the offspring can you imagine 2025 and your child is being lashed at school he had and that's in the report too tying that to the history of black people everything black people are supposed to be beaten you know even even how black even has that in the report how even black people have been conditioned to think oh yeah you got to beat a Negro. Pam told us about that in Sanford and said he said my cousin oh yeah Leroy you had to beat Leroy to get him to work Our conditioning has been conditioned. White people are ignorant and you got to beat black people. Sobriety would be best. Creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person. It has been time replace white supremacy with justice immediately. No name calling, no gossiping, no throwaway offspring, unless you want them to be lashed at school. Cow signing up. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, no brother. Problem. You're a victim. Uh, I'm a up. victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm-hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. <laughs> 
Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.